Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. If ZipRecruiter was in charge of WrestleMania, it wouldn't have lasted for more than five hours. They would have given everyone the right jobs. That's what they do. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within a day. They're the best at distributing your job to the best boards, identifying the right people and and inviting them to apply. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Meanwhile, Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help sell their unsold rooms, which means you get amazing deals. 10 seconds, three taps, and a swipe to book. That's it. Hotel Tonight only shows the best deals at the best hotels. Perfect. Whether you're a planner or like to leave things at the very last minute like me. And with Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better the deals get. Start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. Download the Hotel Tonight app right now. Don't forget to listen to the Shack House podcast presented by Callaway. This week, they broke down Patrick Reed winning the Masters yesterday. Jeff Shackelford stayed there. He was there on Sunday. House watched it and lost money on it, which we're going to discuss in a little bit with, with uh, Cousin Sal. They broke down everything that happened. I thought it was a great Masters. Really did. I really enjoyed it. Um, Ringer NBA show this week. We are heating it up. We are ramping it up. Wednesday night. Be ready, because after everything shakes out on Wednesday night and we know all the playoff matchups, we are doing an emergency Wednesday night Ringer NBA show podcast. I will be hosting this one with a bunch of Ringer staffers. We will start taping at about 10.15 p.m. Wednesday night, West Coast time. It will be available for all the night owls as well as the Thursday a.m. audience. Excited for this. I, I think this will be a really fun Wednesday night. I can't remember more things up in the air heading into the last three days of the season. Plus some Tankapalooza stuff as well. So check that out. And then finally, Andre the Giant. Tomorrow night, HBO. 10 p.m. Just got a frame poster we're putting in the office. So uh, couldn't be more excited. They did a nice plug for it uh, yesterday at WrestleMania. I know you're going to enjoy it. There's no way you won't enjoy it. It's really good. Coming up later, we're going to have the director of the Andre the Giant documentary, Jason Hare, my old friend, along with Sean Fantasy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer. And we're going to talk about uh, how we made Andre, kind of what it's like to make a documentary. It's it's pretty inside baseball, but hopefully you guys will find it interesting. Making a documentary is a lot harder and more complicated than I think people realize. And we're going to go into a bunch of that, a bunch of the decisions we made with the film. There's not going to be a lot of spoiler alerts, um, but if you want to save it until after you see the doc, that's fine too. But we are going to have that coming up first. A rare appearance, a rare non-football season appearance from the cuz, Cousin Sal. We're going to talk about all the money we've lost the last couple of months. But first, our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, he's on the phone. He's driving into work. A lot of stuff is going on. We usually don't don't activate the cuz's emergency bat signal during the off football season, especially during this time of year, but we had to. We've lost an incredible amount of money. We just had an amazing Masters. We just had WrestleMania. We have the NBA playoffs coming up. But more importantly, we've lost an incredible amount of money. 
and we have a dramatic gambling announcement. I would dare say this is the most dramatic gambling announcement we've ever made. Don't you think so? This is pretty good, and it's going to affect a lot of people who um, I think already hate us and, uh, and some that don't hate us but soon will, I think. Yeah. So before the NBA season, we, right. we went big on the under for wins with the Philadelphia 76ers, which I think was 42 and a half. And the thinking was, there was a couple things going in. One, we thought the, the number was too high. Two, Joel Embiid had played 31 games total in three years. And we did not see any roadmap for him to play more than 50. It just did not seem realistic at all. Um, they were playing uh-huh. ben, they were playing Ben Simmons at point guard, which seemed ridiculous because he can't shoot. They had no bench whatsoever to speak of. And we thought the East was going to be pretty good. And we thought this was You know what? The, the more lot. you talk about it, the more I, let's let's do it again. I like it. I like the reasoning. Let's it was great. Yeah, they were they were a young injury prone team. Oh, Fultz was already out, so they had already lost the Fultz trade heading into the season. It just seemed like the stars had aligned for us. And then the season starts, and Bede's not playing back to back, so we're feeling pretty good. He hasn't had his injury yet. It's going, it's going. All of a sudden they're like thirty seven and 30, we start feeling <laughs> bad and now they can't lose. And now the skies have parted and now they are like, a le- not only they're not even a sleeper anymore for the Eastern conference. Their odds are seven to one to five to one to win the East, depending on where you find them. We liked it so much. Uh-huh. Sal, why don't you tell the announcement? Well, I'm sorry, Philadelphia fans, because as you know, like Bill's <clears throat> Patriots, uh, lost to your Eagles in the, in the, Super Bowl, and I bet against Nick Foles all the way through the playoffs. And as Bill points out, um, we took the under with the Sixers. But yes, we are in fact jumping on the Philadelphia 76ers at seven to one to win the Eastern Conference in the uh, in the NBA. What a dramatic turn! <laughs> we went from thinking they were going to win forty two games or less to now backing them to make the NBA Finals. And here's the case for it: yeah. the seas have parted for them from a seeding standpoint. It looks like they're going to be the number three seed, which means in round one, they're probably going to play either Miami or Milwaukee. They'll be favored in either series. And I think they have a, I I think they would beat Milwaukee. I don't even think that's a a contest. Miami is a little more, you know, Miami's a weird team. They're really well coached. They can play a lot of different lineups. They have some experience. I think that would be a harder series, but I still think Philly would win. Philly's got a great home court advantage. Then round two, they would play the winner of Boston versus either Miami or Milwaukee. Boston has been just decimated. I, I don't, yeah. I am the biggest homer there is. And I just do not see a roadmap to make the Eastern finals without your two best players. It's certainly never happened before. Um, but more importantly for them, Toronto and Cleveland have to play in round two. So now we're in a situation where Philly in round three is either going to be hosting Cleveland so they'll either be favored or it'll be it'll be a pretty close line. They'll be close to even, something like that. We could go against our bet. Or they'll 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 be playing Toronto. Toronto would have home court advantage. And Philly will be the underdog in that series, but not by a ton. Against Cleveland, they'd have home court. And beyond all of this, Philly's playing great and Ben Simmons has gone to another level. And when they have Embiid back, they're gonna have two of the best 15 players in the league. They have a bench now. They made the Bellinelli, Ilyasova trades that really deepened their bench. Sarge is playing great. J.J. Redick has been unleashed. 
And they honestly, if I had to bet my life on it, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I think they might be the safest pick. What do you think? <laughs> I agree with everything you said, except for if and when they play Cleveland in the conference finals. I think Cleveland will still be favored. I think if Cleveland were to get that far, which they really should, they'll, I, I think they'd be a two-to-one favorite over Philly. But that's wow. okay. I you think they'd like, be, I would still like our bet. You think they'd be a two-to-one favorite with no home court advantage? Yeah, because I think they'll have turned it on, and they'll have you know LeBron will put up two forty-five point games against Toronto, and I just think a lot of people have been betting they'll they'll bet Cleveland up to two to one favorite. I think maybe it won't open that high, but I think it'll go to that. But the point is, folks, we are now Bill and I and Joe House. I'm throwing him in the mix. Yeah, he's in there too. We need to share the hate. Uh, we are now the Joe Carter. We're now the Scott Stevens to to, to your Philadelphia franchises. I'm sorry. But we've gone the other way. You had a good thing going with us. Yeah. They felt great. They've won 16 straight. And the worst thing that's happened to the to the city of Philadelphia in 2018 is that me, you, and House have jumped on the bandwagon. It's, it's just right. a terrible turn of events for Philadelphia. Fultz is back. <laughs> Embiid is coming back. Simmons is going to be the rookie of the year. Everything is coming up roses. But unfortunately for you yeah. guys, uh, you have three people on your bandwagon that you just don't want. We have had... I, this has been the worst betting stretch of my uh, entire life, starting with the Super Bowl, when, uh, uh, when, when, actually starting, yeah, yeah, starting with the Super Bowl, uh, when I tried to middle the Eagles covering four and a half with the Pats just winning, and the Pats uh, were up by one with ten minutes left, and somehow gave up a eight minute drive and blew the game, and then from right. there we have lost. We're on pace to lose every NBA future bet that we made in October, which is amazing because one of them was the Pelicans, Mavericks, and Lakers, all three, will not make the playoffs. Boogie Cousins gets hurt in January. And we just, that's like a cross-off. Oh, we won that one. Done. And then Davis starts playing like the number two MVP candidate, which he is. Rajon Rondo, out of nowhere, um, starts feeling it. They Emeka Okafor, all these weird people are playing well for them. And now the Pelicans, if they beat the Clippers tonight, are going to make the playoffs. And I don't know how we lost that bet, Sal. I think, Rondo, that was personal against you. But, yeah, you're right. And, and friggin', they, oh, they beat Golden State. Not that Golden State needs to win all these games, but just to beat them over the weekend. And now, now really, we have no chance to hedge that Pelicans bet because they're favored by seven over the Clippers in L.A. Clippers couldn't, couldn't stay alive one more game for it to matter. And then Wednesday, I think they finish off against San Antonio at home, the Pelicans do. And uh, so, I, I don't know at that point who the Spurs are going to be starting. So, so we yeah, need that done. we need that goofy Clippers team that's already been eliminated from the playoffs to somehow beat the Pelicans tonight. And mm-hmm. I am not confident. Here are some of the other losers that we had. Uh, and I don't know if you had all of these, but I know I did. I parlayed. I parlayed. I loved Utah to make the playoffs. And I was right. right. Utah is going to be the four seed. Unfortunately, I parlayed that with Portland will not make the playoffs. So cross that one off. Uh, that was a loss. Um, right. I love the Rockets to win the Southwest. The odds were minus 115. Seemed like a lock. You know what else seemed like a lock? The Celtics winning the Atlantic at minus 400. I didn't realize that right. we were going to get 60 combined games out of Hayward and, and Kyrie. Cross that one off. Uh, I had uh, Miami winning the Southeast. At plus four, that, that's gonna win. I I don't want to jinx that, but yeah, plus four twenty five, right? Yeah, that's so that one's gonna win. 
Yeah, I think so. They're a game up on Washington, and Miami oh, yeah. plays OK State oh, tonight. I rare, think it's going to... A win. I mentioned it, so now it's not going to win. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a, rare, a rare possible win. I didn't know I was alive with anything. Uh, we had Dallas, yeah. the Lakers, and the Pelicans was plus 115 that they won't make the playoffs. I think if if we could have tripled down on this bet in in January when Cousins went down, we would have, right? We would have quintupled it. We would have sextupled sure. it. Yeah. So that one lost. Yeah. Unless the Clippers miraculously win. Uh, under Philly under was 41 and a half, not 42. We have, uh, this, this is one of my, too, right? yeah, so we had the over for OKC, which is 52 and a half wins. They get Carmelo. We have no idea that Carmelo is somehow going to make their team worse. And, uh, right. and they blow, I would sure say enough. somewhere between 12 and 15 games in the last three minutes. I, I have no idea how they didn't win 53 games, but we have that. We did yeah. a, a flyer on Kyrie to win the uh, scoring title, which lost. And then we, we, right. we jumped on Jeff Hornacek as the next coach fired like six games into yeah. the season because I called you and I was like, I think Sir Jeff Hornacek's going to get fired. And uh, then the Knicks immediately went on a winning streak. Porzingis got hot and like three other coaches got fired. So we lost that one. My point is, uh, oh, and then finally we have the big bet we made, which was worth more than all these other bets combined was Cavs Warriors to play in the finals was plus one twenty, And yeah. now that's like three to one. Yeah. That's like three to one. Yeah, right. Um, some, right. so the price that we bought it in October, um, is somehow worse than it is now. I've learned a lot of lessons, Sal, uh, lesson number one, <laughs> don't gamble. Lesson number two, don't do NBA futures. Lesson number three, just bet the thing straight up versus throwing them into these weird parlays because I a lot of the stuff I liked, you know, like Utah making the playoffs and stuff, like Mavs, Lakers not making the playoffs. We should have just done that. I, I have a lot of regrets, cuz. I really do have a lot of regrets. I guess. Yeah, but like Lakers not make playoffs. Those are like minus 400. Like that's why we parlay those things to get it down to a reasonable price. And, you know, the same thing with, Cavs Warriors, like, all right, by this time, we probably thought that would be minus 280 at this point. But no, it's, what'd you say, plus 280, plus three to one? Yeah, the Warriors, the Warriors are having one of the weirdest post title seasons I can remember. They're just completely disinterested in the regular season. And right. they think they could just turn it on in these games and they can't. And uh, they're going to, I remember with Joe House and I did the Over Under podcast wondering how the Warriors were not going to win 70 games with how loaded they were. And they're not going to win 60. Yeah. Now, Curry Curry has missed 30 games. Uh, Durant missed, I think, 10 or 11. Still no excuse for them not to get to 60. I, I think that's an embarrassing performance by them this season. I'm disappointed. I mean, do we, do we have 1,000-player a, a <laughs> game injuries this with, between our bets? Uh, the more you mentioned it, like all these bets we made, like – Oh, this one sat thirty. This one sat forty. This one sat. So I'm like, I'm adding these up, and we're we're in we're you know we're at least six hundred player games. I know injuries a part of it, but yeah, we got uh we got hit hard, right? Yeah, well, the ones we were the most wrong on were Portland. Portland heading into the season seemed like a team that was going to blow things up after about six weeks, and it went the other way. Yeah, they're going to be a three seed. Dame Lillard, I think, is a top five MVP candidate. And uh, and they've comfortably made the playoffs. And then the other one was just kind of betting against the Pelicans, which I still think is a good yeah. idea. I have no idea how they're going to make the playoffs. I watch their team, and it's like 
they're playing Golden State the other night and they need to get a stop and Rondo pickpockets Durant to win the game, basically. It's like, Rondo, anybody could have had him. He was available for a million dollars. So, right. Um, so anyway, enjoy our, enjoy you our, know, we, we're, we're the ones, we're the ones that should be available for a million dollars. They should, teams like the Pelicans and the Sixers, they should parade us at halftime. We should have our own banners. Like, cause they, these teams are going nowhere until we bet against them. And, uh, I, I'm convinced now I'm not, I used to think it was just a coincidence or whatever. Bad luck. No, all us. Sorry. Well, well, no, for, further in that case. So the masters yesterday, um, oh, yeah, we turned it to golf. Yeah. You and you and Joe House, I think, are at the highest level of of uh, degenerate golf gambling. You're watching every week. You have like real yeah. hardcore opinions on these guys. Patrick Reed right. heading into Sunday. It's minus one fifty. You can have everybody else but Patrick Reed. So basically, all we yeah. have to do is have Patrick Reed not win the Masters, and we win our bet. So of course, we go all in. We think Patrick Reed's going to self destruct. He's going against Rory. That feels great. We figure somebody out of like the 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 guys who are around minus ten, minus nine. We figure one of those guys make a jump, and we we're yeah. gonna. This is easy money. Patrick Reed duffs his first drive. Uh, I think it seemed like he was gonna be like minus two after the first three holes. Rory starts yeah. missing putts. Now we start getting nervous. Spieth starts making just a magnificent run. And it really seems like right. Spieth's going to catch him. And then Reed makes this really long, crazy putt on 12. And all of a sudden, there's six holes left. It's like, wow, we're, are we going to lose this? We, we, Patrick Reed's going to yeah. win the Masters. Nobody in Augusta is rooting for him. How is this going to happen? Uh, I feel like we single-handedly turned, turned his luck on that one. What do you think? Yeah. And it was crazy luck, too. I mean, Patrick Reed, if you watched, he would hit it like, Right, you know, I heard the word tributary said in a foreign accent like 45 times this weekend, and he just missed the tributary, and it's it's just like a foot away from the tributary and about to bounce down and roll down, and it doesn't. And then his next shot, he, like, pops it in from, like, 25 yards, you know? And it was that all weekend long. And, like, I'm making jokes, and I think I said to you, like, the Braves have been nice enough to offer their tarp in case uh, Patrick Reed needs to get fitted for the green jacket. <laughs> yeah, that's well, I'm like 15 pounds fatter than him, and you know we have money against Patrick Reed. It's like it's the worst thing you could do, but whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean then Fowler ran out of holes, and that was it, and we lost that. And even in, in a stupid one, that just a throwaway bet that I had, I convinced you guys to go. I said the final shot by the winner would be under three and a half feet. Yeah. And how far was it? How far was that shot? It was four feet. Yeah, we don't know is the answer, but it wasn't three and a half. No. It was probably 3.7 or 3.6, but they marked it as four, and uh, we're losers yet again. I was laughing because ah. he's putting his third shot on the 18 is this long, winding downhill putt that could go wrong for 40 different reasons. And yeah. so my number one priority is please miss this badly. And then the yeah. in the in the back of my head, I'm like, you know what would suck is if – he leaves this four feet away and then has the four footer to make, to make it. And then everything loses. And it's exactly what happened. It's, it's like he picked up the ball and walked it over to the four foot mark just to, just to screw us the most. I, I, and right. the, the funniest thing was I've never, there's been a couple other times when the gallery was pretty lukewarm 
Like I remember when VJ Singh won that year, they're pretty lukewarm on him. I remember Mike Weir when he won that year, the gallery was just confused and he, tepid applause. Uh-huh. You could tell when the gallery is not really behind somebody. I've never right. ever, it's just through the TV. I've never felt the gallery more apathetic and rooting kind of secretly against somebody for an entire round more yeah. than Patrick Reed. They they were going bonkers for Spieth. They're going absolutely ape shit for Ricky Fowler. <laughs> it was like yeah. they're going ape shit for Rory. It's like please any John Rahm, anybody please please start no please Patrick Reed can't win. He he All should right. kind of own it, right? Like he should grow the Kenny Powers goatee and just start Definitely. doing he should start doing the shooter McGavin shooting thing after he makes it. Like just be the villain, just own it. Flip everyone the finger, walking to the next hole. Just do it, whatever, dude. Just uh, walk with your pants down. Who, who cares, right? Why did Why did we hate him so much? He's a nice uh, American kid. He's young. He's dedicated to the game. He's been screwed so many times before. I know this because Harry of the Degenerate Trifecta bets him every tournament, and every <laughs> tournament he blows it on Sunday. Except right. he stayed away from him this week, so he had a chance. And uh, yeah, I don't know why we hated Patrick Reed so much. Fifty-five to one odds, he comes in. Fifty-five, and House had Spieth was his big one, right? To win the to win the Masters, right? Spieth? Yeah, he had Spieth. That was the big one. The funny thing with the Masters, and especially after going there, it makes more sense. Is you're feeling so good when whoever you're rooting for gets through like to sixteen, the par three, and you're like, oh, this is great. Oh, one more birdie, and seventeen and eighteen are just impossible. Seventeen's easier yeah. than eighteen, but eighteen. I tweeted this yesterday when, when house and I, we walked the course on Thursday, we got it. My dad was just parked on the, on the 16th hole all day. House and I walked the course. We walked down 10 with Spieth, which I thought was good karma for yesterday. Obviously not. But then when, when we were at 18, it's just impossible. Like that you could see it when they had the shot of Spieth from behind before he drove, you have such a small window to go straight. You really have to just hit it straight. And then on top of it, you can't go in the trap the, trap on the left. You can't go too far to the right because then you have to basically hit it over the trap. And it's it's almost like pinball. And and it just to to just be oh he'll he could birdie eighteen now he it's it never works out that way. And even with Reed, I was like, well, our one chance is for Reed to bogey this. This hole's impossible. And meanwhile, he yeah, yeah he makes it. Uh, I wish you were right, Bill. I wish I wish it were like pinball because I only the most I ever lost playing pinball was like three dollars and twenty five cents, <laughs> and uh, this is just getting just getting ridiculous. And uh, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about WrestleMania, but I do. <laughs> there, there's a sports book that uh, an online sports book said they took a hundred thousand dollars in WrestleMania bets, all small, and Brock Lesnar was five to one to beat Roman Reigns. Like, how are we not on the easy stuff? <laughs> Crazy. But, so everybody and their brother thought that Brock Lesnar was going to was gonna lose and go to the UFC. Yeah. And it was right. like this Roman Reigns, this three-year push that was going to culminate with him winning this WrestleMania, and then Brock Lesnar was going to leave. I am rarely uh-huh. shocked by wrestling. Now, granted, I was groggy because we were at like the five-hour mark by the time this ended. Oh, my God. I mean, it was the longest yeah. WrestleMania. But it was the equivalent of a twenty-inning baseball game where you're just kind of, you're, right. the announcers are getting punchy. But uh, I, I got to say, I was flabbergasted when Lesnar won. I did not see that coming. And my son was flabbergasted. Everyone was flabbergasted. Crazy. Do you think they had? 
Do you think they changed it? I mean, I guess it wouldn't matter because at some point in the match, rain started bleeding. Like, I mean, it was it was to the point where, like, well, if this is fake, it it's too much. It's stupid. It looks dumb. Um, if this is real blood, what the hell is the matter with these people? <laughs> we got to stop this thing. I mean, there was so much blood going, yeah, and uh, they blood, did the buzzer pinned them shortly shortly thereafter. Oh, you think maybe he did that because of the blood? Because it seemed like I don't know. I think. It had to end soon, either way. He did the Not same sure. thing with Randy Orton where he was doling out elbows that seemed intentional to get the guy to bleed, and they caught him wrestling to get right. him to bleed hard way. Um, yeah. And it seemed like that's what happened. And either that or they, or, you know, the other way maybe they do it is Reigns already has bladed earlier and it's coagulated. So then when Lesnar hits it, it just opens up. But, Whatever yeah. they whatever they did didn't work because he was bleeding to the point that my son who watches horror movies all the time and isn't phased by anything was like, oh my god, he's gonna bleed to death! Like he was actually <laughs> scared. It's, it seemed like he might bleed to I, death for twenty seconds. When when the referee puts the gloves on and then like puts a parka on and covers his face, like this, yeah, they really did a lot, a lot to uh, protect that there. But yeah, yeah the, five to one odds we could on that. The center of disease control came out. Uh, yeah, it was, right. it was, I, I have no idea why they do five hours for these WrestleManias. It's inexplicable. Uh, there's just no way for the crowd. I've been in, you and I have both been at WrestleManias and it's really hard to, for the crowd to keep the energy past the four hour mark. This one went as long as it ever has. There were some good matches. The Rousey, Ronda Rousey was surprisingly good. I, I was stunned that by was that. Um, the Styles match was good with a nice little turn at the end. That was fun. I loved Braun Strowman pulling the ten year old out of the stands. Although my son was devastated, he it would have been well, I, yeah, his dream, you know. I, I, I was thinking this might be our parent corner, but yeah, I, I had the same thing on our end because we a lot of times we went to we didn't go last year, but we went to two WrestleManias before that. We try to go whenever we can, try to match it around our kids' spring break schedule if it works. But uh, yeah, I got the same thing from my kids. Like that could have been me. I was like, that wasn't going to be you. Don't worry, you weren't going to be pulled in. And now this ten-year-old with, uh, with 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 hair that matches Tommy Fleetwood is, is a tag team <laughs> champion. Ron Strowman, right? My son really, really, my son not only was disappointed that he wasn't picked, even though he was three thousand miles away, um, but was talking about how he would have come in and tried to cheap shot Cesaro. He would have walked over oh, to really? Cesaro all scared <laughs> and then punched him in the nuts as hard as he could and then ran back and tagged Braun Strowman. So he had a whole game plan. If 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 Braun Strowman's ever looking for more 10-year-olds, I, I just want to say don't look further than my son because he's ready. Right. He has all strategy. And they really, like, the smaller kids really do have an advantage with punching somebody in the balls. They're, it's yeah, right sure. there. It's a yeah. straight shot. They can get all their leverage behind it. And there's no way to defend right. it. So uh, Cesaro, I think, lucked out. That that Braun Strowman thing was a great idea, though, because I, it could have gone a bunch of different ways. I, I personally thought I, it would have been funnier to pull an adult out of the stands who, you know, was definitely one of those guys. Those like those. It's real yeah. to me. It's real to me. Damn it. Like one of those kind of wrestling guys. And that guy actually right. could have become become somebody for them. I don't know how they have a 10-year-old well, travel with yeah. Braun Strowman, but a 30-year-old kind of lifelong living <laughs> in his mom's basement kind of guy could have worked. 
I want it. Cesaro's big thing. Cesaro's big thing is to swing the, uh, or at least he used to be. He doesn't do it as much anymore. He used to swing his opponent, and the crowd, even though uh, even though he's a heel, they would count how many rotations um, they would be. He'd be swinging the opponent, and it would get up to like ten or twelve. And the guy, everybody, you'd be dizzy just watching. I was like, oh, he's going to swing this ten-year-old. He's going to launch him out into the third row. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. But they didn't. Uh, they didn't think that far. But yeah, you're right. WrestleMania has been around 34 years. Wrestling's been around 100 years. And to, to not make a kid a champion until now is uh, it's surprising to me. It reminded me. This is going way back, but there was this famous Hulk Hogan match when he was in Minnesota with Mean Gene Okerlund, and he was going against some tag team that was really good. And I guess his either his tag team partner called in sick or something happened. And mean Gene Oakland was his partner and it was in Minnesota. Uh And Hulk had a lot of Minnesota ties because he had wrestled there in the territory. And I think mean Gene did too. And Hulk took on both guys, but then at the end brought mean Gene in and like threw, did like a mean Gene splash and mean Gene pinned the guy and the crowd went like ape shit. (laughs) And I thought that, I thought that was in play with the 10 year old, but I have no idea. Do you think that was prearranged, or he really just picked the kid out? No, it had, it had to be. He had all the facial expressions down and everything. That kid, he knew what he was doing. And, he, you know, he was tagged, and he took three steps forward, then tagged back. Uh, yeah, no. Are you kidding me? Of course. They had to. What, it took uh, a while to find him. What, which, which son do you think would have done the best job in that scenario out of your three sons? I think Jack, but only because my 10-year-old, because only he would have been able to reason with uh, his opponents. <laughs> no, nothing physical at all. He's a, he's a, he's a 55-pound weakling, but um, he, he knows how to inject logic into a, a discussion. So that, I think that would have been our best job. But big... I was thinking about Ben. Your, your boy would have uh, – <laughs> he, he would have kept us going for years. I don't know how long the Strowman um, – what's the kid's name? Nicholas? No. I forget the kid's name. Nicholas, yeah. I, there's three things – there's three things my son would have done. One is he would have taken off his shirt. That's a mortal act. He absolutely 100% yeah. would have taken off his shirt. He would have climbed That's to the top rope at some point. And when he came in, he would have punched Cesaro in the balls. I, I promise you those three <laughs> things would have happened, whether they were prearranged or not. He would have done all three of those things. Um, That's hey, great. Let's do a quick parent corner. I, I'm going to start, Sal. Um, Go ahead. My son has been playing baseball, much to my chagrin. Uh and happens to be good at it, which is just completely unexpected. He has been pitching, and what I can't figure out, he's he's pitched six innings, hasn't given up an earned run yet, and has only given up one hit. Wow. What I couldn't figure out was how he knew how to change speeds and do right. all these things that like a pitcher can do because he really doesn't watch baseball. He's not a student of it. I just didn't understand it. And so I asked him, I was like, why are you throwing change-ups? Like, how do you know how to do that? And he explained that yeah. he he's he's learned everything he knows in baseball from MLB The Show, the video game, wow. <laughs> including how to change wow. speeds. So he's in these games. He's going, getting a first strike on these kids, throwing the second one in the dirt, and they swing at it. And then his third pitch is a change-up that they swing two, two seconds too early. And and. If, if the changeup's too high and they don't swing in it, then he goes gas the next one. And it's all from this stupid video game that he plays. Um, that's but, unbelievable. But that's not my parent corner. Um, you're supposed well, to- Let me just first say, let, let, let me just say, how, how good would we have been 
if we had something other than that dumb Mattel game that oh, you held in, in television. your hand three. The three, not even in television, the thing you held in your hand and that three red light. Oh, yeah. And then swing it. That's what we had. Become right. professional. But go ahead. Go along. Yeah, the stupid Mattel back. game. Yeah, we did not learn how to change change speeds from our video games in the early 80s. Uh, so anyway, you're supposed to wear a cup when you play when you play baseball. You know, you make it hit a grounder. My son's playing. He's He can play all over the place, but he'll play catcher for two innings. He'll play third base, like all positions where you get hit in the balls. And we uh, thought he was play, he was wearing a cup. And then we we come to find out after one of these games, as he's getting undressed after the game in our house, that he wasn't wearing a cup. He grabbed the tooth fairy pad from when he was a little small child when you lose a tooth and you put the tooth on the tooth fairy pad, hoping the tooth fairy will get it, that little pillow cushion it says yeah. tooth fairy on it he was using that as his cup my son was pitching catching and playing third base with a tooth tooth fairy pillow covering his balls my son thank wow. you yeah thank you and that works i mean he hasn't worked. given up an earned run yet right? <laughs> it worked. apparently it worked oh, and you should, mar- you should market these yeah, <laughs> shout out to the tooth fairy who needs protective cups who needs plastic who needs 100 years of technology <laughs> when you can have the tooth fairy pillow so anyway, we're keeping it going we're not buying a cup he he likes the tooth fairy pillow and that's where it is hopefully he won't get hit in the nuts uh that's like that's great luck i have uh my mine is baseball related too not as not as good but um my four-year-old started he had his first game the other day and uh you know, they set up these games, and it's – my wife's out of town. The game is at 7.45 in the morning. So oh, that God. means I have to get these kids out of the house faster than – way faster than I would on a school day. So, I mean, we're talking now Saturday I have to wake up at 6.40 and get them fed and get them out of the house, and I'm coaching too. So at 7.15-ish I have to get them out of the house, and no one's moving. So I, I dress my four-year-old in his – in his outfit the night before, he sleeps in it. He's got the belt <laughs> nice. on. Smart. I, even even the cleats. Like I like. I was like, you don't have to wear the cleats. Like, no, I want to wear the cleats. So I was like, all right, you're gonna tear up your sheets, but whatever. I don't care. <laughs> wear the cleats. So he's wearing the cleats. I wake up. I miraculously get everyone out of the house in time. And then they ask me. Uh, the other coach asked me to line the field. Now, have you ever lined the field before? No, it's it's, it's a, a nightmare. Harder. Yeah, it's a nightmare. A lot harder than it looks, and even harder than it looks at. 7.30 a.m. And uh, I, I'm not a drinker, but the way I line this field, like if the cops had observed this, they would have said, all right, you're coming in with us for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we you, need to take you, your kid. You failed the sobriety test of, of lining the field. because, And I put it on Instagram at the Cousin Sal, but it's an absolute mess to the point where my four-year-old looks at it and says, Dad, is that really the best you could do? <laughs> oh, no. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't say things like that, but he looked at me in disgust and shook his head, and uh, little kids were running like drunks for two hours trying to uh, get down first. <laughs> wobbling back to but left yeah, and right. <clears throat> yeah, but the we- bigger point is, like, the bigger point is, like, we're, we're grown-ups setting the schedules for these games, right? It's not these kids setting the schedules. We're grown-ups setting, the, and we're grown-ups who have to, Get our kids to the game. Why are we killing ourselves with the seven forty-five start? Know. Like, let's figure something out. Whether the nine a.m. is the earliest start on a Saturday, for God's sake. My ah. son, my son had an eight thirty game, and you have to get there at seven forty-five, and it's just, yeah, it's just too early. It's it's there's just 
even 830, I, I would say maybe when I become sports star, I have a whole plan for how to become sports star. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to pretend I'm a Trump sympathizer, but it's really going to be a, a nefarious plan to, to take the sports okay. star position, but then turn on Trump after I have it. Um, <laughs> I when that. I do this, no, no youth sports will start before nine o'clock. That'll be one of my rules. Right. We got to look, start looking no, out for the parents. Yeah, and I see the 9 a.m. So we have, we're at the uh, 7.45 game, the 9 a.m. game. There's there's three fields, and only one of them's taken. I was like, we couldn't play at 9 on, on field C, right. <laughs> facing south, whatever you call it. <laughs> it's Come a, on. For yeah, get it together, parents. Uh, yeah, well, wait. I mean, we've had soccer games with my daughter where they've had 8 o'clock games like an hour and 15 minutes from us where we've gotten up at like 5.30 in the morning. I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah. None of our kids are going to be playing for, you know, the Olympic team or the world cup team. I don't know why we do this for ourselves. I maybe I, yours, maybe yours nah. with, the, with, the, uh, with the tooth fairy pad. We could do it. That might be know. it. He'll be giving, he'll be giving sports illustrated features 10 years from now. But I remember when Ben started playing baseball and he put the tooth fairy pillow in his crotch <laughs> and it, right. it, things really took off. Uh, Cause against all odds, you're taping it this week. What's on the What's on the docket? Yeah, we're going a day later. We're going to go Thursday because uh, we want to catch all the want to have the lines for the NBA uh, first round playoff matchups, and we're going to have hockey picks and all kinds of stuff for me and the, the Jenner trifecta on against all odds. Oh, I mean, yeah. this is really this is Harry's time of year, right? Golf. We didn't get a break. Do you realize the national championship of basketball was uh, well, only a week ago? Villanova, Michigan. Like we we didn't get usually get like a two-week break. It went right into it. Masters, basketball, hockey, lots of money to be lost. Yeah, I remember when we were conceiving the Against All Odds podcast and whether a gambling podcast was feasible for every week for the entire year. And we were like, ah, well, maybe. And it is like, think about like the start of March Madness all the way through to Masters. Now you have NBA, NHL, you have Kentucky Derby, you have the three horse races. Um, You have all the tennis coming up. You have the hot dog contest. It, it really there, was there conceivable. Are, Who knew? It was conceivable. There are, there are NFL draft props up, and that's for, not for another like two and a half weeks. So, yeah, a lot, lots of cover. Well, we might if we we might have to do an exorcism with me, you, and House. I don't know how that works. I don't know if it's ever. Maybe we go see some old Italian priest, and he throws some water at us or something. But we need we need something good to happen. Uh, I like it. Maybe Sister Jane will uh, will lend her services. I don't know what, what that <laughs> yeah, would do. Maybe yeah. we can hire her for the rigor. That's a good idea. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> listen to uh, Against All Odds this week. I might even make a cameo. Uh, until then, thanks for coming on. All right. All right. Good job by you. Good job by you. Before we get to Jason Hare and Sean Fantasy, let's talk about MeUndies. I wear MeUndies every day. I really do. I swear to God I do. To the point that my family actually makes fun of me. I have no other underwear. I've thrown all of them out. I've just kept the MeUndies made from the softest material on earth. We're talking three times softer than cotton soft. MeUndies are the most comfortable and fun undies you and your significant other will ever own. Ladies, they come in tons of different colors and styles, including solids and lace, boy short, bikini thong, something for everyone, every occasion. Fellas, the diamond seamed pouch gives your stuff the support it needs without feeling too tight. Oh, yeah. MeUndies is so sure though that you will love their underwear. They offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee. If you don't love your first pair, get a full refund. Right now, my listeners 
Get 20% off their first pair plus free shipping. What a no-brainer. What are you waiting for? 20% off free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee, the best and softest underwear you will ever own. Just go to MeUndies.com slash BS, a limited time offer. Start wearing the best underwear of your life. It changed my life. It's time to let MeUndies change yours. MeUndies.com slash BS. Coming up right now, here's the conversation I had with Jason Hare, director of the Andre the Giant documentary, as well as editor-in-chief of The Ringer, Sean Fennessy. We taped this the day after the red carpet premiere, which was a week ago in LA. It was like nine days ago. Um, so we're riding high from that because it went really well. And this is a very deep dive examination of what it's like to make not only this documentary, but any documentary. Uh, the process is complicated and hard. I have been involved in these really since about 2008. So I have 10 years now of just being immersed in this stuff. And we talked about some tips, some lessons, and um, some things you shouldn't do, some things you learn not to do, some things you want to do, and also a lot of the choices we made in this documentary. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. I think you're going to love this documentary when it comes out. I'm pretty confident. Here it is, Jason and Sean right now. All right, we're taping this on a Friday, the day after the premiere of Under the Giant, the documentary we did. Sean Fennessy is here, editor-in-chief of The Ringer. Jason Hare is here, director of Andre. We've worked together before. We have. Fab Five. You were a young kid. You just escaped the bowels <laughs> of HBO. I'm kidding. Cutting my teeth in the business. Um, and then we did Fab Five, which I think is probably the most watched 30 for 30. The We've argued there, about this. They, they show... Um, Fab Five's on the most. What do you think, Sean? So it's probably the one I've seen the most because they air it like all the time. All the time. They they show it a lot around tournament time. They show it a lot around like NBA finals. Anytime there's like a, a bat, they show it a lot around like midnight madness time in October. And it's one of those this kind of like rewatchable. It's fun B roll to watch. It's not. Uh, it's yeah. We stumbled into this successful formula for thirty for thirty is just tell the story of this and the audience can jump in at any time. Mm-hmm. So like Bad Boys Pistons was like that, the U. It's just like, here's this life cycle of this thing that you cared about. And we go deep and come in at any time. It's like, oh, here comes the Weber timeout section. All right, I'll stay for 20 minutes. I think that's exactly what Andre's going to be too. Yeah, I learned lessons we for that. Are we, can he edit this as we go? Yeah. Yeah. Because are we talking in past tense or like people have seen this or they have not seen it? They haven't. Let's say they haven't seen it. They haven't seen it. Yeah. Okay. Keep so, that in though. I like, sure. I like we're the going confusion. We're going Shaky camera. So some of the lessons that I learned to to do this Andre doc uh, derived from that Fab Five one. I, I saw Fab Five on the plane on the way home from interviewing five guys in Florida who included Bean Gene and Hogan and a few yeah. other guys. And at the outset of this thing, I was trying to think of like, all right, we're going to start in France and end in France. And then we'll weave France all the way in and we'll tell this A story and a B story about where he was from and where he got to. And I was overthinking it. Yeah. And then I just happened to see on like ESPN two on a late night flight, Fab Five, and realized that the visceral enjoyment that people get from a lot of these documentaries is just cool B-roll and fun characters giving great sound bites. It's not that difficult a formula. But it, then the challenge becomes, how do you tell an awesome story knowing that that's the way to keep the people hooked the whole time? That's the next level of this stuff. Yeah. Well, you have to sprinkle in. A good example is, I remember at the outset of this thing, 
when I had reservations about doing it because I knew you were a huge pro wrestling fanatic and I knew yeah. nothing about that world. And you were like, obviously there's going to be moments that we put in there. Like when Snooker jumps off Andre's shoulders and I had no idea what you were talking about. But you were a wrestling fan. You, I was just another level. I knew of it. Yeah. And I watched WrestleMania one and, and my brothers and I, I, I vividly remember my brothers. It was, I think it was channel 56 at 11 yeah. o'clock on Saturday mornings. Yeah them calling me into the room and saying this guy under the giant is going to be on after the break you got to see this i vividly remember us yeah. watching it that day so i knew of wrestling i was a kid but i was not the guy who bought the action figures and bought the magazines and stuff like that i was not although i told vince that i was as we were pitching this thing i i co-opted all the stories from my friends who were huge wrestling fans so we went to a catholic school we grew up and went to a catholic school outside of boston and my friend uh anthony had a wrestling magazine that uh the guy had blood all over him and one of the nuns sent him to the principal's office for reading that because it was like the devil's work. So yeah, I, that was like a big wrestling mag thing in the 70s, 80s. They put the blood on the cover. Yeah. yeah. You, or the, bloody the, pictures. Those magazines and the heavy metal magazines were behind like the <laughs> bar at the magazine yeah. stand, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it was Ozzy Osbourne, buddy, and they had off a bat exactly. and it was like uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan's bloody face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the WWE was awesome to work with. But the thing that took the longest with this whole process was them settling on the right director. They were so protective of this IP. This was like one of the most important people that had ever passed through uh, their whole universe. And they wanted to make sure it was the right director, somebody that vibe with me. Tell about when you had that, uh, I saw like a side reporter. Jason, talk about that time you had the, <laughs> but you going, went in, you had that one-on-one -on -one with Vince. On you and say it was great. Well, you had that one-on-one -on -one with Vince and it was like, you had to, leave that meeting with Vince being like, okay, I'm going to approve this guy. Yeah. There was, well, there was like a gauntlet that I had to go through. Yeah. It was like first uh, Peter Nelson who runs HBO sports and you, and I had known you guys and you guys called and said, are you interested yeah. in this? And was like, all right, let's do this. Let's figure out a way to do this. And oh, by the way, you just have to meet with this guy at WWE. And then you're going to meet with this guy and this guy and this guy at WWE. And, and, Michelle, this guy. and I was like, wait a second, yeah, yeah. like I'm doing like the dog and pony show here. Like every yeah. time. And I, in my mind, I already got the job, but they were vetting me the entire time. I didn't realize this. Then two months after that, it was July 1st, 2016, because it was, the, it was the Friday before the 4th. It was go up to Stamford and go to Titan Tower and meet with Vince McMahon at 2.30. And it's we, we prepped for it like it was like a prize fight. <laughs> really? <laughs> don't look him in the eye. <laughs> no, no, it was don't sneeze. I was told do not sneeze. Oh, I didn't sneeze. know that one. If you sneeze in front of he Vince. He sees it as weakness. He sees that as like you can't control yourself and that he just alphas you out of the room if yeah. you sneeze. Wow, I'm going to steal so that. That's incredible. I took like six Great. Claritin like on my too. way up there. Yeah. You were over, OD'd on Claritin. And you vibed. Vince... So they keep you in a green room that you go in there and you, you you sit in the green room like you would sit in at like the Jimmy Fallon show and they have like snacks there for you and a big screen TV and can we get you anything? And he has two assistants and then you walk into another room and there's an assistant and then you get into Vince's office. It's very, it's surreal. It's like the get smart beginnings, like door yeah. after door after door. And meanwhile, if you need to use the bathroom, you need someone to go with you so that they can like like key card you into these big glass doors to go in the bathroom and triple H walks out of the bathroom as I was walking in. And the first thing I thought of was those old ESPN commercials where like the Syracuse Orangeman is walking down the hall and right. Grant Hill's playing the piano in the lobby. It was like, so triple H just walks around here. That's what he does. Cause I didn't know that. I didn't realize like what a title he had in that business. I was completely yeah. ignorant. Like I was, 
a normal pop cultural fan, but I didn't know the hierarchy of that place. It was like, isn't that Triple H like walking with a suit and tie, literally like with with a Manila folder, going to a meeting? Like, hey, how's it going? What does it mean to be vetted by Vince? What is what is he asking you? What does he want to? How is he investigating whether you're the right person? So we went in, and I thought it would be. I thought he would be bouncing off the walls, telling Andre's stories. I've dealt a ton with Dana White at the UFC, and from what I've heard, like they have similar. Uh, just traits about them and similar characteristics. Somehow both of them are insulted right now. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> sure they'll, I'm sure they'll both find a way to be insulted, but they should both be complimented because I, I, I have, yeah. I hold them both in, in high esteem. Um, but Dana is jeans and a t-shirt and he's bouncing off the walls and he's F-bomb this, F-bomb that. Like his, his enthusiasm is, it's, it's palpable and contagious. And that's what I was expecting from Vince. We sit down, it's a table for four, and it was myself and Kevin Dunn and Vince in an empty seat at the other table, and Vince is facing the empty seat, and pretty much didn't keep his eyes off of that direction. So he's looking perpendicular from me. Interesting. I'm, I'm looking directly at Kevin, and Vince is just staring straight into the abyss, talking about Andre in a very low yeah, voice. Yeah, low-key Vince. As you know, this is a very important story for us to tell. and It was way more solemn and way more... I knew it would be a serious meeting because I knew this was a make or break. This is like the final test. This is like you're going for a job at, at Goldman Sachs and you're meeting with the CEO, you know. But I didn't realize how like he was in that character for a while. Maybe that is out of character. I for think him that's who I, he is. That's how, who he is at this point. Yeah. And he, he was self-effacing and he said that he used to be that guy. Because as, as we got more into it, it was like I was expecting a little bit different from this. Once he realized that I had a respect and a reverence for the story and for Andre and for the culture and for the company and where they come from and where they are now. I think that he realized then that, you know, all right, so he's got the technical know-how. He knows how to put a movie together, but does he have enough respect for us? And the important part for me was to go in there and, and, and it was twofold was to, you know, there, there's, there's the good side and the bad side of Andre, just like I told him there's a good side and the bad side of all of us. Yeah. And if we only try to portray the good side of Andre and portray him as the gentle giant and it's this love letter to Andre, this puff piece, it's not going to be valid and it's not going to it's not going to hit in the ways that we want it to hit. And he was all for that. Like there were Andre could be great and he could be a pain in the ass. He could be this and that just like everybody else. And there were reasons why he could be that. And we get into it in the film. The other thing that I was interested in was pulling back the curtain as to how these things were choreographed, how these matches were choreographed, like how like we can just go off on the premise, start on the premise that wrestling is scripted and not real. It's high entertainment and these are talented athletes and performers, but none of this stuff is a true athletic contest. And I which, which we only say actually once overtly in the documentary. But Shoemaker says, I mean of course yeah, this yeah, is yeah. fake. Yeah, and when, when he, he said as a ten year old, he's yeah. in a in a ten year old's But I was way, I was wondering like, are they gonna give us a note like, hey, can you cut that one? But they didn't. No, they let us he was, do I said to him, wanted. like, are you cool? Because I was really fascinated with how they just how what was the derivation and the evolution of that storyline in WrestleMania three with yeah. Hogan? Because if we just portray it as a sporting event, 
then everybody knows what happened. And you also have a certain amount of skepticism, like, okay, well, we know it's fake and we know it's, but if you tell, that was true suspense. That's the one match that we had to actually create some suspense because truly when they went in the ring, no one truly knew what was going to happen because we established earlier in the film that whatever Andre wanted to happen, happened. He just had that kind of power and that kind of strength that if he didn't want to go along with the script and he was in a bad mood that day, it wasn't happening. So he could have walked out of there with the belt. And then Vince would have had to adjust the entire evolution of that business. Vince is a really, I mean, I love Vince. I feel like he's been in my life my whole life. When we when we had a teleconference call with him in Mike Lombardo's office, um, this was before we even figured out who the director was going to be. And Vince didn't seem that realistic that they were going to want to do this because they had never outsourced any idea before. And he was on this teleconference call and I told Lombardo, who was running HBO at the time, like, at some point Vince is going to test us, and I don't know how. He's going to do one thing. He'll get, he's going to overreact to something. He's going to be mad at something. Like, just be ready. Ride it out. And he's on this call, and it's like the TV I have over there. They're on it. And at some point he just seized on something. I think Lombardo got, like, one wrestling thing kind of, like, he he called, he got the WrestleMania wrong or something, and, and Vince came in and did it. And there's such energy with that dude. It's really... Yeah, I don't. Did he do that in your meeting? Well, you you had warned me a couple of times he's going to test you, and so I can't remember that. This point, with, how did he test you? I've dealt with the alpha males before, and I was like, oh, I could deal with this. And then I was like, well, how is he going to test me? Is this yeah. going to be like physical? Is it going to be feats of strength? It's going to fight you. <laughs> so, and, and what it was was that um, I was saying to him, I was trying to be open with him about the fact that I'm not a wrestling expert, and to pitch myself as this is the guy you want doing this because I'm coming at it with a with a clear eye and and an objective vision for it and not just like someone who comes in with an agenda. And I said, so I don't I'll be honest with you. I don't know anything about the current WWE days, but I did follow it during its glory days. Uh, and that's the one time that he like, like he, 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 he went from that like straight ahead at the back of the room thing. And he slowly turned to me and said, the glory days. Yeah. <laughs> Are these not the glory days? Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah. I said, and I, said to, I said to him, I regretted that the moment it came out of my mouth. So let me let me rephrase what I what I just said. In my mind, those were the glory days. The first of golden stuff. era. <laughs> the first of many golden Whatever eras. Was, but I remember thinking, like, can we swear on this? Yeah. I remember yeah. thinking, oh, fuck. I just like months and months of work on this thing. And now it's done because I just said those two words. And, and now I did it. Like Bill told me he's going to test you. And I just failed the test. And yeah. that's it. But. But then, then we got the feedback like right after, like Vince loved Jason, we're good. I'm like, okay, great. Also, one of the genius parts of the movie, and you talked a little bit about doing an A structure and a B structure, but the B structure basically explains the modern history of how wrestling came to be. You know, it explains how Vince came to power, and like I think because maybe because you weren't this hardcore fan, you knew to pick the right people. One of whom is like our colleague Shoemaker, but Dave Meltzer. You have the, uh, these historians. Lawler. And and Jerry Lawler to telling the story about Memphis. Like, how did you figure out how to build that part of the story while also dedicating enough time to we Andre? Never, we never really knew it was there like it was until you did it. Until we did the territorial. Until you actually did the cut. And it was like it was there. Well, because initially it was like 
Andre's story. And then, yeah. oh, yeah, there's going to be a little wrestling in there. Well, and then when like, you did it. At first, I, around last summer, we started shooting it. March 23rd, 2017 was the, that interview with Vince. And that was, now keep in mind, that's nine months after the glory days like that. Yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I fucked it up. And they were looking for somebody else. But you, we forgot to mention, you bonded with him because he took you to the wrestling museum. Or the, no, uh, we, the, went to, we went to the, the wrestling, wrestling museum. They basically have like a wrestling hall of fame in the court, but it's just in the basement mm-hmm. and it's everything. It's like, what would they show you? Like Andre's socks? It was, Andre's no, it was shoes, Andre's, like the coffin, the coffin that Andre was transported over from France to North Carolina in when Ooh. he died is still in that. We, the plan all along was to start in the warehouse yeah. and snake through and find this coffin. Because the story was supposed to be like, I was thinking like Vince kept this coffin for a reason. Right. Why does this mean so much to him that he kept it? And it turns out that the, the, everyone we talked to was like, this is this is like the beginning of me realizing that all of this is mythology. Vince was like, the coffin is there? Right. I didn't know the coffin is over but there. But the entire history of wrestling was in this warehouse. By the way, the coffin is kept. There's a stack of coffins. There's probably 12 of them. It's like go to Home Depot, except it's yeah. much more dramatic lighting the than price Home tags Depot. On them. But it's like, it's just Home Depot, like rows and rows and rows of stuff. But you bonded with him that day. Over that That's stuff. That's when yeah. I felt, because yeah. you were sending me pictures. Yeah. And Vince was like a proud dad showing him like his basement, basically. But is the so there's a coffin museum at the no, it's not a museum section. So there's there's, not a museum. There's like the second (laughs) shelf, the second shelf of of one of these huge, you know aisles of memorabilia, and just it's not categorized at all. It's not organized. I said to him like. Do you know how much money you can make if you made this into a theme park? Do you know how much money I, people would pay to go? I in? asked Michelle the CEO the, of that too. I was like, how do you not have this in a building? The ring from WrestleMania one is there. Everything's there. Wow. Like the, the, uh, the huge like neon bulbs when the rock came out, like that is there. I had pictures of everything. I had pictures of like, who's the, who's the guy who like had like the Thor. You're just act- sending me like weird <laughs> shit. Yeah. I was just getting these texts of like Andre's There's, a, there's like sock. cardboard boxes that are, that says like Andre's socks. Yeah. And then it was like cardboard box, Andre's singlets and trunks. And I was like, that's going to be the most foul smelling box in the history of sports memorabilia. Like it's just like, sitting on a shelf. But when he did that and stuff, the history of it was becoming more and more apparent. Yeah. But he, I interrupted. He asked about like, when did we realize the, the B story of like, how it went from the territories to well, that the was, that's room. a doc that I was interested in doing anyway. Mm-hmm. Was was that's a business story? Like I think Copperman yeah. had had mentioned before that like that could be a ten part scripted series right. of a guy like taking over that's from like, his dad. That's almost like a mafia story because yeah. he, he got. There's a lot of stuff we left out of the stories of him getting threatened by by other territories. Like these guys were not giving up these territories easily. Yeah, it was he, not easy to just take Memphis. Yeah, he was just vision. Well, Memphis never got taken. Yeah, or not, yeah, yeah, some right, of them are still. Right. Around to this yeah. day, but writing in different ways. Who's the guy yeah. who was in Kansas City? The 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 famous wrestler in Kansas City, but Canada, they never really got either. He pulled was, a gun on Hogan. So when Hogan came back to to the WWF, because uh, Vince Senior banished Hogan from WWF for doing Rocky, yeah, and Vince. Vince and K. McMahon, the Vince that we know, he doesn't like to be called. Not Vince. before it came out. It was when he was filming it. He was mm-hmm. like, yeah. fuck you, you're He was out. like, well, if you want to be a movie star, this is the wrong business for you. You're out. So then he came back and he went to, he went to, um, What's the Minnesota territory? I'm forgetting now because we did, we I can't sh- remember. shot this. I just remember it's, we did nine versions of the map. But then last <laughs> oh my God, last night at the premiere, the map was like, I was like, this is cool. Yeah, this looks good. You it. can read the that's letters. Right. That's right. I was so happy. So it, he came back and then Vince recognized, like that's where Hulkamania started was in that territory. 
uh, up in up in like Minnesota and in, in the Midwest and there. That's where Holcomb and then Vince realized, all right, we're going to take him over. So that story always fascinated me was how this one guy went against the wishes of his father. These unwritten rules that like no territories are going to infringe upon the other territories. And this young maverick comes in and says, you know what? My father is uh, aging. I bought the business from him for a million dollars and I am going to go in and systematically take these guys over. And I'm going to be such a visionary that I realized that syndication and the rise of cable television is what's going to enable me to do this. Yeah, I'm, I'm like 80% on that one, on that part of it. You don't believe that? No, I think I think sometimes you can have a little bit of fortune and luck with that. I think he wanted to take over America. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody saw the potential of cable TV in 1982. I really don't. Because I was there. Like basketball was on the USA network for two years and it was it was kind of like what's this like a lot of people didn't even have cable but I think as as he was taking over America cable started happening and then it just kind of was a, there's a lot of things together. He, could, he could have that vision let's 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 assume for a second he did have that vision if Rocky 3 doesn't happen and Hogan doesn't play Thunder Lips we're not having this conversation right, right now right. because they needed that guy they needed the one person to personify what wrestling was to take right. it to the masses he caught Hogan at the perfect time yeah and then by 84 when did he buy everything in 82 he bought it in, in 82 yeah 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 but I think by 84, he realized what cable, well, Hogan, how big it was. Yeah. And that's when he took, basically he took, uh, he took the USA network and he took half of their primetime yeah. programming. That's and what I was going to say. It's not unlike what we have now where there's so many streaming services and places to put things like cable TV needed content and they mm-hmm. were willing to program the hell out of WWF at the time. And so that is, and you, in the film, you point out all of the stars that he handpicked from all the territories and said, this guy's coming over here. Macho Man's coming over here. Paul Orndorff's coming over here. His version of that would be that we didn't handpick them. They called me. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's because these guys recognize I'm only getting on my local TV in, say, the Crockett territory, and I'm Roddy Roddy Piper, and I want to I have that national audience. I want to be on cable television but by the nationally. Way, as, as a fan of the WWE, these guys would show up, and most of the time I didn't know who the fuck they were. At first. Yeah, it'd be like, here's Jimmy Snuka. I'm like, who's this? Oh, of course you oh don't my know God, he, he jumps like, because all point. I knew was this one WWE show I watched. That is the one thing and, that jumps out too about Andre, which is like, he's the only figure that they didn't have to create a character for. Yeah. You know, he just is Andre. He's just this well, massive. Terry Todd yeah. says it uh, in the closing montage is that yeah. he never needed robes. He never needed capes. He didn't need this alter ego. He didn't need any. He was just Andre. He had such a charisma and such an electricity about him that when he came out and there's other guys who have been big people in WWE and other sports that don't have that kind of charisma and that kind of electricity about them. He just had it. The B story was the hardest thing to figure out because and that was how many cuts before we got it? We when At you least and I like watched five. You and I watched around Labor Day like a hundred and thirty minute cut. And but we, then even the second cut, it wasn't there yet. It still wasn't there. No, that was because it was it was unwieldy because it was like it was threatening to overpower the Andre part, the Andre's A story. Yeah, the history of wrestling is the B story. I always and used, you have to balance it and not go too far one way. I use the analogy that like if your main story is your highway. You can get off an exit and you can go out to eat, but you can't stay the night. Right. So we, we get off the exit and we're talking about the rise of Hulk Hogan. We're in danger of, of staying overnight. But what helped was that you just need to keep on peppering Andre in somehow. What helped was that when he won the title from Sheik in 84, 
Andre the Giant is there pouring champagne on him. And that was a deliberate right. attempt a on the company's part to say, like, we are passing the torch now to, like, Andre the Giant is passing the torch as the alpha dog in pro wrestling to Hulk Hogan. So then we can pepper him back in. And but when we you finally do this figured stuff, out. Yeah, when you do it right, there's, there's like a shorthand. And we were like, just always about the exit. Like, yeah. and we're in the exit too long. Yeah, we got to get back out. The hardest thing to figure out was the middle piece because- we go to the ranch and it's like, well, Andre, oh man, people made fun of him. Yeah. He had a rough life. It was way harder to be a giant than you think. And then it's like, but he had this one place, the ranch. And we have to get in and out of that ranch as fast as possible. Yeah. But you have to cover. He had this whole surrogate, like friend family uh-huh. thing. And, we, going and on. he had a daughter. And he had a daughter. And and, and his and he had a, an ambivalent relationship with his yeah, daughter. Yeah, and how far and, do we want to get? The more you go down that road, the further I am from... WrestleMania yeah, 3. Because 10 minutes ago, you're laughing about him farting. And now you're talking about him being an absentee father. And you're like, wait a second, what, is, what kind of documentary is this? Are we, are we done having fun now? Is it just going to so be did, sad for the rest of the time? What was that section? Like three and a half minutes at, at the end? At first, it was like 10. Right. And in the and end, just kept, it was like, end, now, it's like basically it was, like what has to be in. Yeah. And then. And th- but then you, you, you sit in an edit room for so long and, and you live with that section. Everything starts seeming long because you can lip sync these things and, and, yeah. and you know when all the laugh lines are coming and when all the, the plot points are going to hit. And it's like, oh, three and a half minutes feels like 30 minutes. But to the people watching at home for the first time, you don't want it to go by too quick. So sometimes you have to get away from that section and go to another one and come back with fresh eyes. What, what finally happened, we realized that the link was him breaking his ankle and him taking time off yep. is, is coincided roughly with the rise of cable television and the the making of Rocky Three. But you found that sixty minutes footage yeah. that we didn't have initially. Yeah. So some of the footage we found even after you'd done like two cuts. Jake Rogal and Matt Maxson. And the sixty minute thing because it was outdoors. It was at the ranch. Come at the ranch with Morley Safer. And then all of a sudden it's at the ranch. Still was sixty minutes, but it, it was the gateway to go from. The ranch, he had a daughter, yeah. and it didn't work out that you well. You also use this neat trick of like letting Morley Safer explain right. his physical it resets issues, it. the yeah. things that he has to deal with, which, you know, you wait a long time in the film before really explaining acromegaly and all, all these things that he had to deal with, which yeah. is, was a cool choice. But you have to think like the, the audience at home, at what point does the alarm go off where it's like, all right. You know, we have 44 minutes before people are going to be like, all right, what was wrong with this guy? Yeah. Why did he look like this? I yeah. think I think we were just about the timer was just about to ring there. And the link there was that we were talking about his daughter and his we were saying that his life, his daughter acknowledges that his lifestyle didn't didn't allow him to spend as much time with her as he would have wanted. And we we. I hope responsibly expressed her ambivalence towards it. She said that I understand, but it still hurts me that my father didn't want to spend that but time. But then it's with like, me. how far do you go with that? And, but then Tim White wraps it up and says that he didn't see her and it hurt him. A lot of things hurt him, just like that hurt you or me. And we go right into his physical ailments. So that mm-hmm. was kind of a, like, thank God for morally safer in 60 minutes. But initially there was more in there and there was more background with him and the woman. It was, t- it was well, and it was yeah, like, we had, like, it's just, it kept, and it kept was going that, further off the exit. Then, mm-hmm. She wanted to visit and Andre wanted her to visit, but he wouldn't let her visit if the biological mom was going to be there and that she didn't want to go without the mom. That now we're on like, now we're, now we're staying had, overnight. At, and you had somebody exit. saying like, uh, no, Andre really loved her. He was a, really wanted to be great. It was like, 
we can't put that because he wasn't in her life. It just came up. I'm not a father, but you are. And yeah. I remember you saying like, I'm a dad. And yeah. like, it's, it's disingenuous to say like, oh, he loved her to death. He would have done anything for her, but he didn't want his. But he wasn't uh, in her life. So he, it's like, what do you do? Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about our friends at Squarespace. They make it easy to build beautiful websites, whether you're starting a business, changing careers or launching a creative project or whatever you're up to. What are you up to? Whether you need a landing page, beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included in your Squarespace website. You can even get a unique domain, which strengthens your brand and makes it easier for visitors to find you. Add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support will help you no matter how hard or how easy your problem may be. Start a free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code BS. That's my initials, as well as the initials of the Rookie of the Year, Ben Simmons, to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com, offer code BS. And since we're here, don't forget to check out theringer.com slash shop. Bunch of t-shirts available that are ringer related. Couple hats, more things coming down the road over the next week or so. So check that out, theringer.com slash shop. Back to Jason and Sean. What was the most difficult thing, the strand of story that you couldn't put in? The the most difficult thing to cut? I'm going to have a different answer than you. (laughs) Um, Well, we struggled for a while at the outset of this thing with how much of the mythology do we want to explore and how mu- how many of these outlandish stories do we want to acknowledge and then either confirm or debunk. And you can you can make a choice early on to go farcical with the doc or to go factual and definitive history of this guy. So there's a lot of stories out there. You know where I'm getting. There's a lot of stories out there that we found to be false but they weren't so indelible. This is not like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. I cannot tell a lie that everyone, every first grader knows that. To 95% of the audience, these are not indelible stories. So do you want to take someone down a six and a half minute road to tell a story that turns out not to be true? We, Which by the way, a lot of documentaries do. And then by the time it's done, it's, you go, why did we just spend six minutes doing that? Well, we, we can it make took it us tr- nowhere. We just found out it wasn't true. And then we would have to do the mathematical equation. Like, all right, if we do spend four and a half minutes on that, what are we taking out? And and our solution was, we'll do a podcast right before the doc comes out. <laughs> exactly. And we'll explain why Samuel Becker was in there because it was a bullshit story. Yeah, I'd love to explain and that. And by the way, it wasn't really true that he drank 119 beers every night. It well, happened a couple times. Have, it may have been true. Oh, certainly not every night. But like you, every once in a while, my Twitter feed will show up like Uber facts or something like that. The world record for alcohol consumption is Andre the Giant, 156 beers in one sitting. 156 seems to be the number that everyone's accepted. And oftentimes in the interviews, people would say... You know, I heard he drank 156 beers. And the follow-up question was always, well, were you there for that? No. No. Well, how many did you drink in front of you? And the most that we got, the thing is that these are still impressive feats, right? So Ric Flair said he drank 106 beers in front of me. Rob Reiner says that he drank 20 bottles of Nouveau Beaujolais in one day on the set of The Princess Bride. Terry Todd, who followed him. And he was adamant about it. Yeah. He said, I'm not exaggerating, twice. We always kept it when the person was adamant. Yes. Reverend is like, it was 20, I kid you not, it yeah, was 20 I'm bottles. I'm not exaggerating 20 bottles. Terry Todd, who was a respected writer and wrote a, a, a long-form piece about Andre, that this is classic piece for Sports Illustrated, 
spent a month with him and he said, I personally saw him consume 7,000 calories of alcohol a day. And this is not some like writer who's going. Who's I didn't ne- know there was going to be math. What? <laughs> well, he broke it down for us. With 7,000, how many drinks? Like he said, 25? Well, it depends if you're having uh, IPAs or what you're yeah. having. He said that's 20 to 25 beers, yeah. maybe four like or five bottles of wine. Of wine. And yeah. I love that he said several mixed drinks because yeah, right, that's, that's like right. five yeah. to 80 yep. vodka sodas. <laughs> yeah. But we had, so we had people. So it's like, if we have people saying, I saw that, why include someone saying, well, I heard he drank 200. Right. Immediately you invalidate your doc. And it, so we we decided very early on, it's going to be all first person stuff. Well, and then you also had, when you, is the embellished stuff, we acknowledged it. Like the rows of teeth and all that stuff. Yeah. The, we, well, the, um, it's clear that. Yeah, this is what happened McMahon with Andre. McMahon says People that like the, his, 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 he was so larger than life that any story you heard about him, you'd believe it. And McMahon said, I used to tell people he had 82 teeth and they were in rows like a shark. And then <laughs> Ric Flair says that Larry Henning told him that he had two hearts yeah. and he believed him because there were these stories that people would just believe. But so that was, we were acknowledging that there is there is mythology about him out there that but exists. But Samuel Beckett did not walk him to school for the people at home. That, was, that would have been we a long... Cannot, we cannot find I, proof of that happening we, anywhere. We, we, in fact, found proof of it not happening. Yeah. Where we did, did that story first come from? So where did, why is you his Wikipedia talked page, about it, you guys talked yeah, about it like you it was knew true. it was a thing. But I, like, I'm not as familiar with that story. So where does that... Does, did I Andre did, I tell someone that once? I started working on the doc. So... Wherever it derived from, there's been there's been a couple of um, graphic novels that have been published that that told that story. Mm-hmm. And 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 in, in the author's defense of those graphic novels, they, there's a disclaimer at the beginning that these are based on stories and interviews, and we're, we're gonna we're gonna um, illustrate these things and bring them to life, and and we're stretching the truth here. What's true is that Samuel Beckett did have a home that was down the road from Andre's village where he lived outside of Paris. It's like Rue de Samuel Beckett now. Like the, it's famous for, for housing, for having that house there. Um, but the legend is that Andre, by the time he was 12 years old, was so big that he couldn't fit on the school bus and that Samuel Beckett built a cottage with the help of Andre's father. And as a favor to Andre's father, he would bring him in his flatbed truck to school and that they had several conversations and developed this unlikely friendship and they would discuss cricket. They had a gay relationship. <laughs> that, no. that was a I never heard that one. But so we asked his brother about it and his brother looked at his wife in the interview and was like, what? He had never heard this. Like these people are not privy to a lot of the, the, the pop cultural mythology that we are they live in rural france i mean it's like going back in time mm-hmm. so he looked at her and said i don't that they're like murmuring to each other in french and what he said was first of all there was no bus to school we walked two kilometers to school to the schoolhouse oh and also part of that story is that andre had to leave school at age 13 because he was too big for the classroom he just couldn't fit in the desk so there was no bus to go to the school Everyone left school by the time they were 14 in rural France in those days. You either go to work in the fields or you go to a trade school or whatever you do. And he said, Mr. Beckett, we did remember Mr. Beckett lived down the street. And if he saw us walking in the rain or something, he would stop his truck and all of us kids in the village would hop in and he would give us rides sometime. Hmm. So 
I'm sure that there's a seed of truth. We've already spent too much time on this. Yeah. This didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. I'm sorry, internet. Like so many other Andre stories, it, it did happen. not happen. Maybe he did drink. The other one, like there's another one that like he passed out in the lobby of, of a of a bar and they had to put the piano cover over him and the <laughs> yeah. businessmen and women were waking up that morning in the hotel and walking around him. They thought it was a construction site. Come on. Well, like, there was other stuff we, we, uh, couldn't include that we actually think might have been true. There were some, there were some graphic, some graphic stories. He was in Japan and could not fit in the bathroom, so he would have to, um, when he had to relieve himself, not number one, um, would have to do it in a hotel blanket, and then the maid service would have to take it out, tie it you up. Didn't want to animate outside. that and put that in the Didn't, film. Decided no. not to. <laughs> Decided not to include that. And, and by but, the way, but that was, by the way, mayor, it seems like it was true. That's that's more plausible than Samuel Beckett yeah, talking right. about cricket with him. He's in Japan. That's a practical thing. Small hotel rooms can't literally that's can't get in the bathroom. That's another one of those things that was necessary to acknowledge because one of the first questions people have all the time is, how did he go to the bathroom? How did he have sex? Is another. How did he have sex? Like, how? What were his proportions? Probably lying down. Yeah. There were um, some. Um, Female members of the Ringer staff, after we screened it for our staff, yeah. uh, who were quite curious about the mechanics <laughs> of Andre's sex life. Was a topic. I didn't. A- I I asked uh, some questions that I, that I never thought I'd be asking about those mechanics, <laughs> and I think Hogan's the one who says I didn't know anything about his girlfriends. I didn't know anything about this. No one was really willing to go through the X's and O's of of how this these plays <laughs> developed. Literally, the but the, but. We did have to, and Ric Flair, his first appearance in the dock is him saying that he had a size 24 ring and size 27 yeah. shoes, baby. But remember. <laughs> what else do you need to know? So that was an important part. Like, listen. But we not, took that. We had that out for a while. We did. And and to your credit, you said, put it back in. I think there was, my there, credit. there was just some, there were some other executives that said, take it out. I don't get the joke. It's uncomfortable. And luckily you came, you came to our defense. No, I just said, said to you, look, in. people are going to watch this and they're going to want to know. That's going to be one of the main questions. Yeah. I did, think she, did women like him and did he have a big dick? Are yeah. just going to be two questions yep. and yep. let's, we can spend 90 seconds here and bang it out. And, if, and by if, the way, if you noticed in the theater last night, People were all in on that yes, section. I was actually. They were all the because fuck there's in. been we've done a lot of screenings, you know, yeah. for, from two to twelve people, and there's been some awkward silences at that point. It depends who's in the room. Not last night. No, last night it, it played well in that room, definitely. <laughs> Classic Hollywood. That's what they're interested in. Yeah. My big thing that uh, you asked, like the big regret of cutting it, and it. By the way, we should have cut it. But the whole part after WrestleMania three, when he actually wins the title for two seconds and then gives it up, and it's the only time he held the title, and the the evil twin ref, the evil twin ref, Ted and, DiBiase, the, and it was like here's Andre's greatest moment. He wins the title, but then he immediately gives it to Ted DiBiase, and they, he held the title for two seconds, and the, the, he was a complete sellout then. Yeah, and, and he was like, a sellout. This is the antithesis right. of the Andre that we remember come to that storyline, and yeah. it, it, it easily could have been in there, but it, it goes back to the exit thing where. Once he loses WrestleMania three, it's like we get to the end. Well, His I remember has asking Shoemaker and other people who actually are historian and Meltzer, like people who know this for a fact, like because I need these guys to keep me honest. Are we safe in saying that it was a precipitous decline in his career after WrestleMania three? Now, if that's the truth, we got to go. Yeah. We got to wrap this Let's up. Move. I don't want to spend 15 minutes on his angle with Jake the Snake and whether or not he was really afraid of snakes. Mm-hmm. We've The climax of that film is WrestleMania three. And then you have to start wrapping it up. Now we have to tell how he died. And my goal always was to get back. I love bookends and I wanted to get back to Molien. And my maybe my favorite moment 
is the chair in the end with the brother because that's the most humanizing. I just, I love anyone who who we could talk to who presented him as Andre Rusimov, the human being rather mm-hmm. than Andre the giant, the fictional character. That's where my interests lie because I, I had more interest in the human interest story than I did in the wrestling story. And by the way, that's that's an advantage of like doing this with HBO. Like we get to go to France. Yeah, we spent a lot of time in and France it was worth with it. nice equipment. It and was worth it. It made, it made the documentary better. I'll tell you a story when when we knew that like the stars were aligning for this. So we, knowing that we were going to shoot in the hotel where he died, it made budgetary sense because we were going to have to rent a room there anyway for a day or two because we wanted to be there for that to stay at the hotel. And he died in '93, and we were thinking we were coming from the. I mean, I thought about this before, but we're coming from the airport like off the red eye, like everyone's psyched up, but we're exhausted. And we're thinking like, all right, what are the chances that someone's going to work in the hotel who was actually there around the time that Andre died? And then can they put us in touch with someone who was there the day that he died? So we get out of the van and the guy who's helping us into the lobby with our equipment, I asked our translator, the first thing I asked him to do was ask that, that bellman. And the bellman was the guy who discovered Andre. And he's in the dock. to take it further. 25 years later. Yeah. Our director of photography stayed in the room where Andre died, and this was not deliberate. So he's loading the stuff into his room, and the, and the guy in French says to our translator, this is actually the room where it happened. And we're looking at each other like, yeah. listen, I don't believe in, 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 in a lot of you know mystical things, but it's like, all right, someone, someone's pulling some strings here. This, this might go well. That was indicative of what happened for those eight days while we were there. We went into Molien with a stack of black and white photos, and we're literally knocking, there's 40 people live in this village. And we were knocking on doors saying like, good afternoon, uh, Andre the Giant lived, grew up here. Do you recognize any of the people in these photos? And a couple of the guys said, yeah, that's me. Because we wanted to know about his childhood. And then we said, where is his brother? And they said, well, he hangs out at this pub one town over. So we were like private or like private investigators. We get in the van, we go to the pub and they said he was just here and they give us his address. We bought a bottle of wine. We went and knocked on his door and said, we're a a camera crew from HBO in the United States. We're doing a documentary on your brother. Would you participate? Because we couldn't find his phone number. Normally you book these things in advance. We were on the ground. Yeah. He told me he was doing this and I was nervous. (laughs) Why? We're going to France. We're going to Andre's hometown. (laughs) We're just going to try to find people and stuff. It's not that was basically no, I know, but it's just it That's can go journalism, man. I it love can go that. Badly. <laughs> you just, that was fun. You were, you were trying to tell the story because it's did, so. I'm did so we used even to know his family was there? That, yeah, know? yeah. What's that? Did, were we even 100 percent positive? Like his brother was there? No, we we knew they were living. We knew from I had I it was had just kind of one of those. Let's hope this works out. I had lunch things. with his nephew, who we interviewed, but uh, he was he was one of the cuts in the doc. He didn't make it. Um, he made it last night. He was bummed. He was bummed that he wasn't in the dock. He said to me in French, like, fuck that Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was. That's what he and uh, Andre's daughter and Jackie McCauley, who ran the ranch. Those yep. three last night pulled me aside and said, that was the real Andre. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, like, they yeah, seem yeah. genuine. Those are the people. That's what psychs me up. There's plenty of people in the industry who come up. Oh, that was great. And you know what happens at those. It's like. Yeah. You believe them or you don't. Although, as Sean pointed out, everybody went to the party after, which is a good sign for the for the film. Yeah, when the party's you, full, you know that they the like party's the movie. full. It's a good sign when they're not trying to avoid you and say. Exactly. There's always like the you know. Uh, there's a shorthand. There's a list of shorthand for like if you come out of a movie that's not that good, it's like, hey man, congratulations. That must have taken you a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like, hey man, how long did you guys edit that for? <laughs> I knew we were in good shape last night because I was. I was kind of trying to hide because I didn't, 
I was I was trying to find my kids and I, and then somebody grabbed me and uh and they were like Stephanie and and Triple H want to see you immediately. They're really excited. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Slam through the dessert table. <laughs> no, no, it was a pleasant thing, but they were like, they want to see you. And I went over there and, and they were both like so emotional and happy. And Stephanie had never seen it. Well, Stephanie, and I. And you should tell the story about how we, I mean, she was, we interviewed her. We and, interviewed her and this was still, I still haven't spoken to her. I wanted to speak to her last and night. And she can listen to this. Well, I think we're going to see her in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We're we'll doing see a screening before. the day before yeah. WrestleMania in New Orleans. And I think that she's introducing the movie there. So I was I was glad to hear that that she had a positive reaction she loved to it, it because her interview was so good like we we were like high-fiving after that like she's definitely in like she was so she she had an attachment to Andre as a little girl and there's pictures to back this up she said he was you know he was like my best friend and we had this like he was like my uncle and they had this like really cute relationship but at the same time if, so if we tell that story and then we portray the story of Andre as an absentee father mm -hmm. who saw his daughter Robin the three story. or four times. It's not that we were trying to paint a better picture of Andre than was real, but it would have confused, in my mind, it would have confused the viewer. Like we've already said, like, listen, Andre had his shortcomings and his, his, uh, his paternal neglectfulness was one of them. If we all of a sudden paint him as this nice paternal figure with with Stephanie, it just it muddled things. And I felt bad that we cut her out of it. But that was the reason why she would have been in. This goes back to the key to a documentary, which we were arguing about the other day mm -hmm. with somebody else's documentary that I won't mention. That shall not go named. Um, but if you're going to do these correctly, you've got to cut stuff out that you like. You just have to. It's the hardest thing to do. Kill your it darlings. hurts. It fucking hurts. And there's. There's things that you have in there and you're like, God, I can't believe I have to. But I always tell, you just have to. I tell our editors, I tell our camera crew that there's shots and there's moments that you are going to be, that, that you know are going to be in this thing that are not going to be in this thing. So I'm warning you now, like, are you going to be pissed off at me? But I'm telling you, it's going to be for the better for, for everything. And yeah, when he that went, goes for me too. Like yeah. I was positive we were going to do that sequence of finding the coffin at the beginning. And then it was going to end with the coffin and the door to the warehouse closing. Like I knew that's how we were going to start and finish this thing. It never came close to that. Who was yeah, I remember when he went to France and then he came back and he was like, it was unbelievable. This happened, this happened, this happened. And in the back of my head, just from being in experience with other people who went off and they, they, the trip they fall in love with. <laughs> like you had too much stuff, burgundy. Yeah. <laughs> no, like the, the stuff that they shot on the trip yeah. and like, oh, and I got this and I got that. And then it's really hard to, for them to, for the directors to cut that stuff out because they're attached to it because it was a lot of work to find it. It was a lot of work to get it. Mm -hmm. It means something to them. But at some point, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be in the dock. We cut and out. Here's Jason was good about that. Jason's like, whatever's best for the dock. Best idea that's wins. It. That's our motto all the best time. Idea best idea wins. wins. So, but in the wrong hands, somebody would have kept seven more minutes of French. Well, France we could have done all we, that. We, we could have done, done a half hour on France. We could have done a half hour on the ranch. We could have done, you know, several shorts. People on these fall things. in love with the shot. Like, oh, yeah, look at how the sun we had these the beautiful, lake. like the guy mm -hmm. who shot the drone footage for us killed it. And yeah. The, like the, that, that shot of the weed at the beginning where we pan yeah. up. That's that's our DP shot from on the ground. That's actually in in uh, Carolina. And we made that look like France. But um, you hit a point where you have to be able to just one be example. Like, should it, this though, go? Is we're going door to door. 
and you're right. You're so proud of like of like your high five and that you found a guy. And there was a guy named I forget his last Jacques Poulain was the guy's name. And he was a first grade classmate of Andre's. And we found him like we went on the ground and found this guy and found his house. We were bribing people with like flowers and wine and stuff. And we knocked on his door and it took us a couple of days to convince him to be on camera. I think he had a bit of a speech impediment. He just didn't want to be on camera. And then he told us in the interview that Andre was a little bit bigger than all the other kids in first grade, but certainly not a giant. And that was in the the original open and that he had his hands were so big as a little boy that they would have him play goalie because he was good at stopping the ball. We took that was for time. It was like, all right, how much can we, now? That's a cool story to tell now. But that's an example of like, you got to, we had said from the beginning, we need to get him to North America and get him famous as soon as possible. Still check all those boxes. What was that, like nine minutes? What, the original? Getting from like credits, oh, France, the, all the, the way the to when version? he moved to America. Probably 11, like yeah. in the finished version. Like if that goes 13, it you can even feel in the theater yesterday, people at some point are going... Yes. Is Hulk Hogan going to show up? Like you, <laughs> exactly. you got to take care of everybody. Exactly. And we got we we pushed it as far as we could go with. Now he's here. He's under the giant. Uh oh, yeah. music. And it's also like we we put that the music montage in. It was like to wake you up. Like just as yeah. you're like you never want to lull someone to sleep at any point. But it was like all right, all these shots are beautiful and it's cool that he, they're all black and white. Nice, There's nice a lot of subtitles. Music. Yeah. It just gets to be like, wait a second. I came here for to scratch this nostalgic itch, and you guys are telling me about how Andre, it's all subtitles and black and white footage and, and rare stuff. But I'm I'm done with this. Boom. Then you have to hit him with this '70s pop song. And show them a, a bunch of B-roll of guys getting cement blocks cracked over their head and, and guys getting choked in ropes. Just how ridiculous the 70s. It's just like well, now, now one, you're just giving visual popcorn of like fun stuff from the 70s and waking people up. We had one more obstacle, which was people die really prematurely in wrestling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So as soon as this was a go, it was like we made the list. And it's like we have to interview these people first. It yeah. sounds it sounds grim, but there there's old people in this and it's like. You gotta All call, right, gotta let's, call let's go fast. Like, yeah. Let's get him. We gotta, we gotta and go. Well, you just Flair, don't know. Everybody's still Flair. alive that we interviewed. The the Flair health scare that happened last summer mm-hmm. happened hours after that interview. Yeah, like really. If, let's say, let's thank God he's still with us. But but if things had turned out differently, that would have been his last interview, and he was not looking good. No. Like he was not feeling well. He was not looking well. Um. So it didn't really surprise us that that things went south for him. And thank God, like I said, like thank God things took a turn for the better and looks like he's for the for the moment. But we had people that were dead that would have been like Roddy Piper would have been unbelievable. Piper, uh, well, Bobby Heenan. Bobby Heenan would have Bobby been Bobby Heenan was a lot. He passed away during production, but he was also incapable of being on camera. Right. Mm-hmm. But at, to a man, all of the people who were alive said, oh man, if Bobby Heenan were alive, he would have loved this project so much yep. and he would have he would have made it come to life. We didn't have Stud. We didn't have- Macho Man. Macho Man. Um, Andres hated Macho Man. <laughs> yeah. But that's actually something I remember when Bill first told me about this whole idea. I think you don't realize that having seen the movie now, but I feel like the degree of difficulty on this movie is really high because your subject is dead. Many, well, that's a, ma- by the ma- way, that cannot be overstated. I mean, that's dead subject is a nightmare. He also does not speak English as his first language. And he also is like a mythological figure, as Shoemaker points out in the movie. And so you have to parse truth and falsehoods all the time. One of the best notes that HBO sports team gave, and they were great to work with, too. Um, on either the first cut or the second cut, they were like, we need more Andre. First and cut. you were like, first cut. 
he's dead. I, I gave you all the Andre and they yeah. were like, we need more Andre. And you were part like, oh, fuck these guys. But then part like, you want more Andre? I'm going to find you more Andre. <laughs> and we, we had. And you went out and found like five great clips of Andre that we didn't have. It in was the first a great cut. note. And we went back to the drawing board. Now, yeah, because they were right. That's what bothered us. They were like, they're right. That is there more you. Andre Don't speak for me. I was, I was, no, no, no. It, it, of course. Well, we're like, you're right. They're right. We yeah, need more Andre. Let's go. It. So myself and Jake Rogal and Matt Max and all of us used to work with the people giving us notes. So th- this was, we have a, a very, like, we have a shorthand with them. Like, all right, I get it. But I'm telling you, we've given you all we got. It was like, we well, it's, it'd still be great to have. They were actually really cool The 60 about it. Minutes clip. So the then Princess we went back Bride to the drama clip like, was oh, amazing. he speaks here. And that actually some of that stuff ended up in the closing montage where he kind of was like, all right, we don't have, remember that one of our first closing bites was like, it was Vince McMahon saying he loved this. He loved this. He loved life. Yeah. And it was so trite. It was like, I just, I was like, you know what? It's just not feeling right. And you were like, no, it's good. The music's good. It works. But it's like, it just sounds like an eighth grade book report. Like that would be the last line of like, and that's I was the trying story to make you feel good. The, yeah, I know, <laughs> no, I, I know. But you know, and I, I could sense that too. It's like, you know, when it hits, you know. When, the when opening you, was the same thing. It opened with this Hogan thing that now is in like the 20 minute mark of the movie. Which is where it should we be. We talks about it used to the open. first time I yeah. saw Andre and I watched him walk in. Clydesdale horse. Because the note yeah. was like, initially the movie kind of opened like how it opens now. And then we got notes like, you need a star in the beginning, like to be yeah. more. So we tried Hogan in there. And the reality is it worked better with Terry Todd and David Shoemaker. Because and we didn't even see, that, we didn't even well, see either of them. I also, there's like trusted people that I, I show it to like before even the network scene. And you have the same kind of, you have yeah. your kind of coterie of people that you show it to. And I have, it's my wife and kids. <laughs> and nephew I, Kyle. Have, I have my brothers and some buddies from home that I show it to. And one of my buddies from home was like, he doesn't even know what we were doing. I was like, check this out. This next project. He's like, oh, you're doing a Hogan doc? Because we what we did was we, we led up. Oh, no. The original first thing the, the, before the Hogan story, the original opening of this thing after we abandoned the coffin story was the moment, the moments leading up to when Hogan slams Andre. And then we cut to black right on the slam because we were going to like revisit that yeah, later on. I, I didn't like that. Yeah, and I didn't need it, but we, it's one of those things where you're like, all right, let's just throw everything at the board and let's let's decide what doesn't work. And that clearly did not work. We we did that opening that was like version number nine or ten. I think. Oh, the, the one that we have now? The one that we have now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That took a As while. As it should be. Like, the, there should be some a lot of blood on the tracks. Like, when you finish this thing, it should have been like, I love it when it's like, all right, here's my plan. Please tear this apart. And I think that that just comes with experience. It's just like, all right, I don't have all the... 10 years ago, it's, it's also, like, this is the thing we're going to do. And if you don't like it, then you're wrong. Your taste sucks. It's like, no, all right, here's my plan. Tell me why this sucks. And, and let's, it can't let's be a lot back. of people either. The process was the right process. Yes, it was. We had it exactly had be, the right If you're doing these right, the like kitchen. all the notes should flow through in person. Yep. The thing I've learned over the years is the director spent so much time with it that they become fragile. And... <laughs> They really do. Like, Me? damn. No way. No, it's not even you. It's everybody. No. It's, you're so immersed. You're so deep in it. You can't see it anymore. And if you have five different people going, you should do this. You should do that. This is wrong. You feel like you're under attack. It's like getting fired at. So it has have, to come from one person. I don't have kids, but I would imagine if you go to like a parent teacher conference and you think that your kid's an angel and the teacher's like, well, you know, she's having trouble with this and that. It's like, what are you talking about? No, no, no. No, now this is you're six wrong people, about it. Now, six if every people teacher you, is saying, like, listen, yeah, yeah, she does talk too much in class. Hard. You're like, wait, 
maybe she does talk too much. Like maybe we need to address that. So it turned like if you re, if you respect if it's a small group, which it has to be. Has I could have be. 40 people I respect, but if you have that many voices shouting at you, then it's, but if there's a, a small group of people whose opinions you respect, and they should be different, that's the, what's the old saying, that if, if everyone agrees with you in the room, yeah. you're in the wrong room, or if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. So if we all have the exact same opinions on this thing, that's why the, the, the fulcrum of this thing creatively was the day that we watched the first rough cut. And then we, you took, you said, first of all, this is in way better shape than I thought it was going to be. Well, it was, it was like two good of a rough cut what well, that it was, that like was an hour 40 i, I was like, what the fuck <laughs> but it, where's my two and a half hour rough cut that we yeah. have to chop down so it was already tight ish but it was also that like bill is very very good at seeing it you know like i said before you can get locked into the minutiae when you're sitting in a dark edit room for three months and you're you're slaving over this one moment and which angle you're going to use bill's very good at seeing the thirty thousand foot view of it like this is what's important you were the one who recommended adding the rocky three stuff in there it was like we have to start yeah scratching that was like these kids nostalgic of the stuff, yeah. yeah and I, six I, which million I dollar man too yeah well that's kid of the 70s thing that i didn't even realize my this favorite part of that be... clip by the way is that like so six million dollar man he plays a sasquatch and he's chasing the six million dollar man through the woods. Got a huge laugh in the premiere last As night. As it should, because he's a he's a seven and a half foot Sasquatch, and instead of just beating this man to death, he rips a tree out of the ground and chases him with <laughs> yeah, it. Right. Why do you need to use that you as a weapon? He needs an object. You're fine with just your paws and your claws. You could scrape this guy to death. And Lee Majors takes one look at him, and I love that he kind of delays a little bit, and he's like, "I can take," uh, and then he rips the tree out of the ground, and he's like, "No, nope, getting the fuck out of here." No, nope. and he runs off camera. That got one of the biggest laughs because it was just the preposterousness of it. Who was the most fun person to talk to? Um, Flair. I mean, we we were laughing so much on Flair. He's got a great PR in the doc. Flair he, goes like just six his, for seven with his, five threes. Flair's slugging percentage is about like 10 eleven hundred in this or stuff. Ten, ten yeah. rebounds. Yeah, he owns yeah. four of the ten biggest laughs, and yeah. he's only in two. Scenes. I'll tell you. Can I tell the Robin Wright story? You remember that story? Oh yeah, definitely. So tell that one. Robin Wright, which you know is every '80s kid's first crush. First of all, still like unbelievable looking, incredible. I mean, still just, probably just, the most just beautiful person in the world. Beautiful, right? And thirty-five. When years you interview later. people in that world, they come with handlers and hair and makeup and a publicist and whatever. Mm-hmm. And we're told that Robin will do this. Well, I wrote and said I wrote to her agent, and he said write a letter and say why you want her in this. And I wrote a letter and saying that, like, you know, huge respect for your career. And we want female voices in this because it's such a masculine industry and a masculine story and this whole thing. And then I got a lot of not a lot of women in this doc. Mm -hmm. No, we needed Robin Wright. We did. She's a breath of fresh air after looking at like Jerry Lawler and Pat Patterson. Anyways, Jerry Lawler, (laughs) not not known as just a drop dead gorgeous. Yeah, maybe maybe back in the day. Yeah. uh, No, no disrespect to Jerry. Um, So she said yes. And then we scheduled the interview. And I said, like, we have hair and makeup for her. We can, like, we can get a car for her, whatever. They said, no, she's going to show up at noon at this hotel in Santa Monica. She'll do her own hair and makeup. She's fine. And I'm waiting in the in the lobby for her, feeling like I'm 10 years old because Robin Wright's about to show up and I'm going to say hi to her, right? <laughs> she hops out of her car at valet and walks up to me. I said, hi, I'm Jason. She's in chucks and jeans and like a button down shirt and just like casual. It doesn't even look like she's wearing any makeup. And it's the best looking person. Just the, like, just like there's no one else in the room. There's no one else in the world at that point as she's walking through the lobby. So we get onto the elevator and she says, so I heard you did Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal yesterday. And I said, yeah. And she said, I talked to Carrie Elway's um, when are you going to interview him? And I said, well, you know what? We have so many characters who were in this doc from 
The Princess Bride that we only have a certain amount of time to spend on The Princess Bride in this doc. So we elected to do Billy and Rob and you. And she said, well, by the way, we're in the elevator at this point going up to the room where we're about to shoot this interview. She says, well, I don't know how you're going to do a documentary about The Princess Bride without Carrie Elwes. And um, I said, oh, no. oh, this isn't about The Princess Bride. This is about Andre the Giant. And she said, what? <laughs> so I said, no, this is about Andre the Giant. She said, oh, I only have two stories about Andre the Giant. And I said, I know exactly what they are. And, and we I, used them both. And I told her what they were. You, know, you talk about slugging percentage, yeah. like batting average. This was the high. So we sat down. And now I feel terrible. Like we sat down, we were like getting her ready to go. And this is a, a credit to her. She had a couple of like flyaways in her hair. And normally like a hair and makeup person would come over. And I was like, Robin, you just have a couple of flyaways there if you want to fix them. She looks in the reflection of the metal camera, the back of the metal camera, and looks in the, the, the lens, the matte box, and fixes it there. And she's like, ah, it'll look, look fine. Like she did not care at all. It's like, all right, what do you got? And I teed her up for those like, two I'm the things. most beautiful woman in the world. I'll be fine. <laughs> so, but she didn't come off as that at all. Yeah. It was like, she just had other places to be. The interview was four and a half minutes long. We used about four minutes and 12 seconds of it. They used half of that in the promo. Like yeah. her batting average was like Amazing. 9.94 for like, normally you, you the, the, the standard is like you use one seventh of someone's interview. She came in and hit four threes in a minute. She, <laughs> she really did. Yes. This was like <laughs> she didn't Connor read your Henry. letter, though, huh? What's that? She didn't. She never got a chance to read your letter. Sounds like I didn't. I didn't even ask her. Oh, and also it was like I don't even know she knew what network this was for. I was like, mm. but I had a whole thing like, is she going to sign a release? Do we have to do it through her lawyer? And I said, Robin, you know, we have a release. She's like, oh, no, no. boom, scratches her name and said, thanks, guys. That was it. She was in and out within six minutes Amazing. from 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 sit down. That was to the, the HBO component of this. There is like a little halo effect with them. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we get everybody who's in the Princess Bride if we're doing this for. No, no. If we're doing, I don't want random network. Yeah. Or if we're saying like we, we're independent filmmakers and we're going to sell this afterwards. Like there's, there's, no, there's no way you do. We don't get any of the. Four. You don't get Schwarzenegger like on a moment's notice. Right. It, unless you are a you already have these names and B it's for HBO. They they cert, they come with a certain cachet. There's a gravitas there that's like, OK, we're already if these guys vetted. HBO vetted these guys and they're doing this doc, then it must be. The one legitimate. thing we blew is The Rock because we'd pushed for that for months and months. And as it turned out, um, he loved the doc and never realized we had asked him to be interviewed for it. It mm -hmm. never got to him. And of uh, course, oh, I had one great story. And it's like, oh man, all right. Yeah, well, because this is where Google does help. Like if you Google The Rock and Andre, there's several pictures of him like throughout his childhood. The Rock's dad with wrestled with Andre. Yeah, Rocky yeah. Johnson tag teams with, with Andre and all that. So he knew him really well. And I'm thinking like, all right, it would be great. If we, we were going to do a whole section about Andre with children. There's that, that famous photo at the beginning with the little kid looking up at him. And then Stephanie was going to be a part of that. When did you know this was going to be good? <sighs> Sean has to go. <laughs> Sean's gonna go. We'll finish it. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. To Sean's gonna play golf. Later, man. Good luck. Hit him um, straight. When'd you know this was gonna be good? I hate that question because I, I've I've seen it three hundred times. No, but I mean, like, good like, in the sense, like, when you do these things, there's a part of you that thinks, like, I'm gonna fuck this up. This is gonna suck. Yeah, definitely. But then you hit a point where you're like, oh, when we came back from France, we we had and. A straight A interview, like a, a nine and a half out of ten. I always, I always report back to our guys uh, in the in the edit room, our guys and girls in the edit room of like how it went, and it's always a baseball analogy. So it was like, how did Vince go? It's like stand up double. Yeah. How did Hogan go? Four twenty dead center field, three run home run. Right. 
how did I won't I won't mention any names that didn't go well, but it was like <laughs> struck out looking. Yeah. Never took the bat off my shoulder. Um so when we had like the stand up double and the home run and all that, so we had that in our in our arsenal already. So you know you have two characters who are great, who are major to the story, Vince and Hogan, and both of those interviews couldn't have gone better. Yeah. Then we came back from France and I knew that we had his backstory and I knew that we had debunked a lot of the the mythology that was out there. And we had these shots of the hotel where he died. Then I was like, all right, now now we can start filling in our spots. So now we need our flares. We need our Schwarzeneggers. We need our, you know, Lawler. We need to go down to Memphis to get him. And then we need to get all of our B-roll together. But when you have those tent poles, if you have, you have the important guys who are going to keep your house on stilts, which is McMahon and Hogan and his backstory and great B-roll. I mean, and I can't say. The, and the glue guy. The, Dave you need Shoemaker. the two glue guys. Dave Shoemaker. You need the two great interviews. You need the two or three wild cards mm-hmm. and you need the yeah. blue guy. If you have like those six people, the rest is easy. It's really like building like a, an NBA team. Like if you build like a, a clubhouse for a baseball team or an NBA team, you need your start. You need a guy who's going to hit your jumpers all the time. Jerry Lawler, every time we threw to him, he was hitting an open 18 footer every time we needed him. Well, to. you and I are anti-narrator, which sometimes you need a narrator, but mm-hmm. I always feel like if the interviews are good enough, then a narrator is a cop out. This and is the was, first time I'm anti-narrator in a sense that I admire people who can do that. Like Ezra, our friend Ezra Edelman did the OJ doc, which was eight hours of material with no narrator, which is, I don't, I don't think people understand how difficult a feat that is to, to get every one of your interviews to say exactly what you need them to say in a compelling way. This was the first time I haven't used a narrator. So this was, this was kind of going, and I remember the first conversation. I wouldn't let you use a narrator. That that was the first conversation we had. It was like, you can do whatever you want. You're not, don't use a narrator for this. You're good enough. You don't need to do it. You can do it. I I really feel like if somebody's good enough, they don't need a narrator, but you do need the glue guys. Cause if we didn't have Mm -hmm. shoemaker, if we didn't have the French guy, yeah, uh, the French journal yeah. Patrick, and That's if we didn't s- have like Jerry Lawler and Mean Gene, yeah. they kind of became the narrators. Anytime we needed to shove something forward, yeah. Well, that's why you save a guy like Shoemaker for for later on in the shoot because that was smart. Otherwise, a narrator would say, in the early '80s, the advent of cable television w- was was looming, and this was going to happen to the the. But that's a good example, though. So, narrator conventionally, you'd have a narrator say that. Uh-huh. You went and found this commercial of cable TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I just think that's a higher level to do this. I, I always feel like it's lazy to use the narrator. There's ways to, there's reasons to do it. Like when you did the uh, the Fab Five one, mm-hmm. you're telling like this deep dive story of all these different, you know, this six year run. And it would be really hard not to have a narrator. When it's statistical, that's when it's hard because the guys who could give you the facts that you would give in narration. So if you say like, uh, if you say in 1992, the Michigan Wolverines were a six seed in the South bracket, you know, like you can get a writer to say that you can feed him that line. But if Mitch album says it, it's not like it's so compelling that it's better than if a narrator, sometimes you need that shaman to take you through, especially when it's like, all right, the bulls were in the middle of a 13 game win streak when Steve Kerr went down with a collarbone injury and blah, blah, blah. I bet if we did the fab five thing over again, we could do that narrator. Though. Oh, I would do, I would, I would do, I hope that I've grown in seven years since we did that. And when I, some look, of it's time too, if you don't have, if you have a limited amount of time to make it, then you need the narrator. We interviewed Mitch album. Uh, for the Fab Five on March 1st, and we that premiered on March 13th. I remember that. Yeah. we He wouldn't do it initially, right? Or we, there was that, some sort of screw up with it. 
it wasn't a screw up. I think that he was, I think he wanted to be a producer because like, he wrote yeah, a he book wrote called the, book. the Fab Five. Yeah. So he wrote the definitive and book on And we were holding this. out for C-Web too, which was all other oh disaster. Oh my God, that was another, that was, so uh, the, the Thursday after the Super Bowl, I get a call that Weber wants to talk at, after he goes off the air for Turner, he was on the, their Thursday night show. Yeah. And it was uh, myself and an executive, Keith Klingscales at, 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 at uh, ESPN and Chris. And it was like, all right, Chris is finally going to come to the table. Mind you, we're airing this thing on March 13th. And when when they greenlit the doc, it was supposed to be November 6th was our first shoot date with Jalen and Jimmy King and Ray Jackson at Jalen's apartment. That was the first day of shooting. And we were going to air this thing to commemorate the anniversary, the 20-year anniversary of the Duke game their freshman yep. year in December. So we were going to have 13 months to do this. And someone dropped out. Jack Nicholas dropped out from doing the 30 for 30 about the 86 Masters. By the way, that broke my heart. <laughs> broke your that heart. Was like, that, it broke my soul because that, that, that meant we had to actually finish this thing well, in you four know, months. Remember I tell, I always tell the story about the Andre goes back to like that first 10 or 12 we had when the initial oh, 30 yeah, 30 yeah, yeah. That was one of your first. 86 Masters was one of the other ones. Yeah. It was like 86 Masters, Doc and Daryl, yep. Andre the Giant. Bo Jackson. Bo Jack. It was like the, the 12 essentials. Yeah. Uh, I think Hagler, Leonard, no, there was some boxing one in there. There's anyway, boxing um, ones are on my, I mean, you know, but they legendary Knights had done some of them. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, anyway, the 86 masters was on the initial list and then all of a sudden it fell through. So then, then that we're that, speeding up. That's that time slot was open. It was like, can you do this in, in nine fewer months? And we didn't have C-Web. And it was like, we kept we can, waiting for C-Web we to get realize. Him. Jalen said, we'll get him. And I think C- it was like this Mexican standoff where like, we were saying to C-Web, we're going. And he was saying like, you can't, you, they're not going to go without me. And then finally it got to a point where it was like, all right, we're not going to do this. And he, he realized it and he called and we had a conversation that night. And he said like, here are the stipulations under which I will do this. You got to use my composer. And we said, fine. And he wanted, he was going to do a book and he wanted um, some advertising. He wanted a guarantee of like full page advertising in ESPN, the magazine. And they're asking me and I'm saying, I don't have the authority to like, right. sure. Okay. They'll, they'll iron this out. And they said, all right, done. Like, and he said, I want to, I don't want to be just a producer in name. I want to participate in this and you'll come down to Atlanta next week. We'll do a two day shoot at my house. I have pictures. I'll, I was like, all right, Eureka. Now we can scramble and do this thing within a month and finish it. Radio silence. There was some Jalen C. Webb stuff going on. Oh, there still is. And I mean, it, it made, this whole, whole thing made it worse. But then, then we found out C. Webb was shop, shopping his own version of a Fab Five doc. Well, as he was. The funny part is that I got a call afterwards, after the Fab Five aired, and I got a call from one of his agents, and they said, um, "Great job on the doc. Would you be interested in doing a Fab Five doc with Chris Webber?" That's weird. Yeah, that's. I think that was the my exact response. I re, I don't remember how this was communicated to him and how involved that was, but I know we communicated to him, and I think I might have sent him an email, and I think he might have had an AOL account at the time, which is why I remember it. Mm-hmm. But it was basically like, because at that point we'd done enough thirty for thirties, and this wasn't a thirty for thirty, but now it's become a thirty for thirty. What's that? Oh yeah, it was. It was in at that, the time. It was that weird. It was ESPN era films. between. That's when like on guard the Chris Herron one was. Yeah, there. when they were like, we don't want to call these thirty for thirty anymore, and we're like, yeah. why? Everyone's calling them thirty for thirties. So let's keep it going. Now well, it's, no. And now it's to the point where people say like, I heard you doing a thirty for thirty on Andre the Giant. Yeah, say, yeah. Actually, it's for HBO. It's like, well, whatever. Well, it's a 30 same for 30. thing. It's it's like Kleenex and Band Aids. But um, 
but we knew enough from the first series and we knew how rewatchable these things were. Mm -hmm. And at that point, some of the ones we were picking for whatever, for the between the 30s, but then like eventually in the back of our head, volume two. And you just knew like they were going to be rewatchable. Yeah. And this one, especially. And I remember it was communicated to him and I'm pretty sure I sent the email. It was just like, this is going to be on for the next 30 years. You're going to feel like a fucking idiot that you're not in it. Like we're telling the ship, the, the train this is leaving will be the on station all the time. And you're not going to be in it. And other people are going to be telling your story. Like we're doing it anyway. Like just be in it. So I remember that an email went such out a mistake. between the five guys. Like this would be like to, to like to, to screenshot this thing would be fascinating. Yeah. There's an email between the five guys. And I think Jalen said like, listen, this is how we're telling our story. Let's all get together and tell this. We got to do it. And Chris responded. I was I was either CC'd or BCC'd on this. And Chris responded and said, I would love to be a part of this, but because of these sanctions, I'm not allowed to speak about any of this stuff. Which is bullshit. So then I jumped in and said to reply to all, all of them and said, hey, great news. Mary Sue Coleman, the president of Michigan at the time, says that you can speak about whatever you want. You're free to go to a Michigan game. They just can't invite you. So this is great. When do you want to do the interview? And then radio silence. So when we called him on it, it was like, he never wanted to do it. Because it, it was a territorial thing with him it and was. It was. It was an alpha dog thing between him and Jalen. And it always has been from the time they were 12 it, years it's old. It's gotten worse. Well, I went to- It hasn't gotten better. We know that. The I, second finals that I worked with Jalen, Jawan was on the court. In Miami. We, yeah, I sent you that. I took a video because I- I wanted Jalen to have it. Well, this is legendary. Yeah, this and he, story. And Jalen walks over and C-Web's talking to Juwan and C-Web sees Jalen and just turns his back. And Jalen high fives him and C-Web is just kind of walks away like two feet with his back to him yeah. and waits for Jalen to The thing leave. is that I- It was I, so fucked up. These guys were like brothers. Yeah. I feel, I, I have, I have- no hatred at all, no ill will. No Ill you were failures. just in the middle of the whole thing. Yeah, I just wanted it to happen because I thought I truly want those banners to go back up for these guys. I do think that like that people they people misremember yeah. this is the Fab Five scandal. This was Tractor Trailer, and all the, the egregious stuff happened way after these guys. That's why like that they had to to have these sanctions across years and years of this stuff. So I have I have no ill will towards Chris. Yeah, it's a mistake. I I just, I'm not mad at him either. I just wish he had been in it. It just would have been better. Here's what I do wish. He went on Dan Patrick a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, maybe. And there's other examples of this, but here's here's an anecdotal example of it. He went on and said, I would have loved to have been in it. They didn't contact me until a week before they finished. That's I have... I have all the yeah, emails. I called true. and emailed him and his agent week after week after week after week to ask them because I was not going to take no for an answer. Or at least I was going to, I was going to die trying. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we died trying and he, he finally, we couldn't do it anymore. But listen, we did Mitch album on March 1st for March 13th. Yeah. If he wanted to do it on March 11th, we would have done it, but he just never came around. We have uh, Andre April 10th. 10 o'clock. We should mention there's an Easter egg. I'm not going to give away who it is. But my favorite thing about this entire documentary, somebody is interviewed wearing the same clothes as the oil painting of himself that's behind him on the wall. And I'm not going to tell you who it is, but as you're watching these interviews, look in the background to see if there's an oil painting of any of those people wearing the exact same outfit that they're wearing as they're getting interviewed. 
it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And I don't know if, did you frame it intentionally? We, we did. You did, right? That's Tom Stuckus. He's our DP. He's don't a genius. Don't say who the wrestler was. I will not say it. It um, was a wrestler. So keep your eye out for it. It's a wrestler. And just, it's you know, just magnificent. when you see the cast of characters, try and think of, a, who would have an oil painting of themselves in their apartment? And B, who would wear the exact, same, wear the exact same outfit for the day of the shoot when it's the camera crew is coming over? Yeah. It's so good. We should have done it with everybody. Who has an oil painting of themselves? I think that might be a style we use from now on is that we bring an oil painting of the subject of the interview and, and hang it strategically in the back and soft focus. You're still single, right? I'm single. So if you're still single 20 years from now, like, is there an age where you're like, fuck it, I'm just getting an oil painting of myself? I have several in my closet throughout the years. I was going to make a little collage. Hey, you know what this living room could use? An oil painting of me. And if I ever if I, if I ever sit for an interview in a documentary, I'm going to save the outfit from when they painted that painting and make sure oh I can fit God. back into it. It's no, so good. That's a, that's a great catch. It's a great Easter egg. Yeah. That entire day, I mean, I, I could I could tell you that was a bizarre... That, that was... <laughs> As we were setting up for that interview, I called my shot. I, I came out to the truck and I said, I'm going Bay Ruth with this one, boys. I'm calling my shot. It's going to be a home run. And it was a dribbler to third base. And I was out by three steps at first yeah. base, that interview. We Dude. did we did get a couple of moments out of it that we needed. But that interview, was a that was a frustrating day because I thought he was going to be our MVP. And it turned out uh, a lot of talk. that wasn't the case. A lot of talk until the cameras were on. That's what, you know, when people give you really good stories, you got to say, shut up. Wait until the, the mic is on and then tell the story. Can we talk about what's next for you or no? We can't. Something's coming up. Something's coming up. Uh, Things are happening. The The planets are aligning, I hope. It's a dream project if it happens. Isn't it cool that this thing's going to be on HBO and they have like eight channels and they just show stuff over and over again? It's going to be out all the time. Well, I, do I can't think, wait. I do think it is one of those that's like, you mentioned before, like one of those that if you're the jump in channels, you can just jump in at any point. It's, it's like, it's, oh, WrestleMania three is coming up. It's a very rewatchable doc because yeah. there's a lot of just like, oh, easily... the farting section's coming up. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. And we should we we certainly do have enough deleted scenes that we should we should release. We're those floating a little out bit some. Too. We should do that. The, my biggest challenge was making sure we didn't give away some of the juiciest best parts before the doc comes out. I'm a out. proponent of that because I think that like, no, because this is too good. You can't. That that you do it when I have no objectivity with you that. do it when you're trying to pull more people to the back. We don't need to with this. That's that's we have this stuff lined that's up ready cocky. to go. Let's go. Huh? Uh, no, it's Andre. People love let's Andre. Let's go Winston Wolf on that, please, and and what? not and not start doing something yet. What do you mean? I think that we're being a little cocky by saying that this is so good that that we don't have to show anything. I didn't say it was so good. I say the interest is there. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you that. Definitely. People are like Andre. When is it? What date? Like yeah. we don't really. Like they're need showing up. It's not like we're like, there's people out there going, I'm not sure if I want to watch this. They're certainly not wondering what it is about based on the title. Yeah, it's like, I'm on the fence with this Andre the Giant talk. Could you, is there a clip I could watch By that way, might if make my mind up? I would give my biggest self-critique in my career would be that the titles of the documentaries. We've discussed this before because we had discussed several permutations of a, of a title for this doc. We look back, we did a doc about five freshmen playing I, called the Fab Five. I mean, you know where I stood from day one. You once called Andre the Giant? I just thought that's where it was going to end up. If you look at my- You really wanted Giant. Or so, we, we were talking about Eighth Wonder. Like, I just think that my titles are lazy. I suck at titles. But we also I'm also of the opinion that no matter what you- Like, like um, 
Well, we Courtship, kept... Courtship of Rivals is the name of the Bird Magic doc that Ezra People did. Bird and Magic. It's Bird Magic. That's the doc. And well, no Ezra's... one says like, have you seen OJ Made in America? They say, did you see the OJ doc? But that was the case for Andre the Giant. Yes. Was, but they're going to call it this anyway. It's like, ask three people around you what the OJ documentary is called. And they would be like, uh, OJ? Yeah. Exactly. Nobody knew it was OJ it was Made like, in America. So we're going we're to do a film about the Fab Five. What should we call it? It's not like we, we, we had this, you know, we didn't need a think tank to come up with the Fab Five. We're going to do a film about the 85 Bears. Let's call it because that was supposed to be called immortal. And then people were like, what does that mean? It was like, well, it's called the 85 bears. It's just called because that's what people are going to call it. It's the saving private Ryan analogy. What's the movie about? about? They're going to save private Ryan. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) great. Yeah. Someday, someday I'll have a cool title for a doc. But until then, until I mean, these I'm lucky enough that there there are these like indelible pop cultural figures and, and teams that we have covered that it's like, well, that you have to call them that, you know? Well, this is a great process. I really enjoyed it. I hope we get to work together again. It'll happen at some point down the road. Likewise. I hope sooner than later. Good times. Congratulations. It was really fun last night watching that whole thing. It was. That was a good night. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks to Cousin Sal. Thanks to Jason Hare. Thanks to Sean Fantasy. Don't forget Andre the Giant. 10 p.m. HBO. Tuesday night. Available on all their platforms. If you miss it for whatever reason, DVR it. You can watch it on HBO On Demand. You can watch it on HBO Go, HBO Now. Anything with HBO in the title, you can probably watch it on. Check that out. And thanks to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. My listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. We have two more big podcasts coming this week on the BS pod, plus me on the Ringer NBA show Wednesday night after all the games are decided. Stay tuned for that. Don't forget to check out TheRinger.com. Lots of good pieces going this week, including Kevin O'Connor's award ballot for MVP and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is on TheRinger.com right now. Uh, Spoiler alert, he picked James Harden because he's a rational human being. Anyway, check that out. Thanks. Talk to you soon.